This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 231 of the program. Today is Friday, February 28th, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased their monthly pledge. And that includes Adam Wright, Agent XYZ, Alice Broswecki Taylor, Amber Shoemate, Ava Darkness, Barb Hunting, Ben Burrito, Christopher Idarola, Courtney T, Daphne Brule, David Henault, Deli Espresso, Derek V, Elizabeth Kiroga, Frank Cardenas, George Irwin, Hakon Klepe Norman, Incredible Math, Joel Smith, Kyle Lussel, Laura McPhail, Liberty for All, Marcus Froderberg, Mark Hine, Matt Wilson, N Doghouse, Plant Matter, Paolo Sousa, Quincy Rufin, Richard Stark, Sergei Shevenko, Shireen Wadener, Sue Ann Zimmerman, Sue Crayer, Svetlana Volkovinska, T Doug 101, Thomas Erb, Thomas McKerney, Tiffany J. Kim, Tom Anderson, Tom and Judy Conkle, Truth Seeker 419, and West Crosby. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals for supporting the show. If you'd also like to support us and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support, patreon.com humanistreport, or underneath any one of our YouTube videos, you can click the join button and support us that way. So this week on the program, once again, we've got another jam-packed episode. We'll talk about MSNBC's meltdown after Bernie won in Nevada decisively, and how even Fox News thinks that maybe they took their anti-Bernie bias a little bit too far. We'll talk about Mike Bloomberg blaming Bernie Sanders for vandalism. Judge Judy vows to fight Bernie Sanders and his supporters. Mike Bloomberg will be launching an all-out media assault on Bernie Sanders. We'll talk about how Bernie Sanders is now within striking distance of Joe Biden in South Carolina. And on top of that, I will give you my pre- and post-debate breakdown, and we'll end the show by talking to 2020 congressional candidate Samelies Lopez. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Hopefully you all will enjoy the program. Let's go ahead and get right to it. MSNBC's coverage of Bernie Sanders' victory in Nevada on Saturday was so biased, so laughably hysterical, that it wasn't just the online Bernie bros who were complaining about it this time. Everyone saw through it. Even if you don't like Bernie Sanders, even if you hate him, you couldn't not see just how much contempt MSNBC's pundits had for Bernie Sanders. Because even Brian Fallon, who worked with Hillary Clinton in 2016, he was literally her national press secretary, commented about just how bad it was. So for example, he tweeted out, MSNBC sure has a lot of commentators who hate Sanders. I know, right? (laughs) If you're from Team Hillary, if you're anyone who is part of Team Hillary, and you can recognize that there is a really strong anti-Bernie bias, that's how you know that MSNBC has gone too far. And for those of you who missed it, here's just a taste of what we saw when we tuned into MSNBC on Saturday. 
the happiest person right now, it's about 1.15 Moscow time. This thing is going very well for Vladimir Putin. I promise you. He, he, he's probably staying up watching us right now. How you doing, Vlad? These, again, are people who work on the Strip within two and a half miles of the Bellagio, largely people of color. Of those, the majority are Latino, and they are clearly, at least from eyeballing it, strongly in favor of Bernie Sanders with Joe Biden coming in. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940, and the general, Renault, calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Charles said, how can it be? you got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling. I can't be as wild as Carville, but he is damn smart. And I think he's damn right on this one. No one else is as hungry, angry, enraged, and determined as Sanders voters. Democrats need to sober up and figure out what the hell they're going to do about that. They were genuinely unhinged genuinely unhinged and they were criticized so widely so loudly that the president of msnbc phil griffin was forced to respond and basically said we'll do better <laughs> and you know they were forced to kind of address these recent controversies with chris matthews comparing bernie's rise to you know the fall of france during world war ii and it was so bad that even Fox News made fun of them for being so hysterical. Fox News. Fox News. Listen, when your coverage becomes so biased that Fox News can make fun of you and be correct, I mean, it's time to really look in the mirror and try to figure out what you want your news network to be going forward. But nonetheless, look at what even Fox News said about MSNBC's bias against Bernie Sanders. James Carville, as only James Carville can say it. Well, some in the media are wasting no time blasting Bernie Sanders. Sanders as the Democratic Socialist reinforces his front runner status. Here to react, media reporter for The Hill, Joe Concha. Joe, you watch this stuff for a living. What's your take on it so far? Oh, boy. Yesterday was like my Super Bowl yeah. as far as some of the reactions there. Chris Matthews, he's the most senior personality at MSNBC, actually compared Bernie Sanders winning to the rise of the Third Reich. In other words, the Jewish presidential candidate whose family was wiped out in the Holocaust, he's comparing to the Nazis taking Paris in 1940. Let me go through a couple, actually. Nicole Wallace used to be a Republican, uh, or I guess still is on some level, was yeah, a communications director it, for Bush, yeah. right? She says, Bernie hasn't been vetted by either the press or the other candidates. If only someone gave her a show for an hour on national TV five times a week. She also says the press is not does not have as much power as they had when I was young. Boy, that's true. The Hill back in 2016, Jason, we did a compilation of 59 newspapers and who they were endorsing right before that election. 57 for Hillary Clinton, two for Donald Trump. What did that get Hillary Clinton? A concession speech and a set of steak knives. The impact of media and people being told what to think and who to vote for does not have remotely the impact or influence like it used to even 20, 30 years ago. But how can the media complain? I mean, they kind of missed this whole story. I mean, it hasn't. It, Bernie Sanders is leading and leading strongly. Yeah. And you have some others that are not even close. It, and they act shocked when he wins, right? right? Again, it's like 2016. How did Trump take Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio? I don't know. If you left New York and Washington once in a while and got to the grassroots and see what people are thinking, that, that would be uh, telling. But here, look, this is a hilarious scenario that we have shaping up. If Bernie Sanders captures a nomination, many in media, as we're seeing, are petrified or downright low the Bernie Sanders candidacy. 
because they think he's going to lose. Then on the other side, you have Donald Trump, and they, they don't like him either. And the press is very good at picking a side. Who are they going to pick here? And more importantly, they go after Sanders, his supporters, just like Donald Trump in 2016, the deplorables. Don't go after people's supporters. You know, the worst part about that is they're right. And if you just tune in to like any show on Fox News on Saturday, even Judge Jeanine Pirro, she just reported the fact that Bernie Sanders won. There was no criticism, no remarks about him being a communist or anything like that. So, I mean, look, I'm showing you this clip from Fox News not because I want you to think that they're better than MSNBC. I think MSNBC objectively is better than Fox News, not that the bar is that high. Um, I'm not telling you this so that way you view Fox News as a legitimate news organization. But I'm, I'm showing this to you because MSNBC is doing real damage to the country. Fox News is strategically capitalizing on their incompetence. They're not necessarily trying to poach MSNBC's viewers because I think anyone who watches MSNBC regularly isn't going to jump ship for Fox News, but they're just going to get people to stop watching MSNBC. And they want that to happen because MSNBC is their competitor. So, I mean, when you become such a joke that even Fox News has a point about your bias, it's time to do better. And look, I'm not going to suggest that Fox News' coverage of Bernie Sanders was fair because, of course, even they compared Bernie Sanders to Nazis. He's promised uh, most recently uh, free preschool, free health care, free tuition, and of course legalized pot. Well, if you look at what he's promising, it's the same thing that the Soviets did in, in uh, Russia, the Germans did in 33, the Cubans did in 59, and even Venezuela today. It's a lie. And, and so what we're talking about here, Bernie is promising all this free stuff, Steve, but the very people who he's promising to will be the ultimate payer. Yeah. So Fox News is bad too, but here's what I'm trying to say. MSNBC should be nowhere near the level of Fox News. Fox News should never ever be able to say, look at how bad and laughable and biased MSNBC is and be correct because Fox News is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party. They are literally a fake news outlet. They just lie. They make up facts. So for MSNBC to become as bad as Fox News when it comes to the issue of Bernie Sanders, they've got a choice to make, right? They have got to face the noise. Bernie Sanders is the front runner. By Super Tuesday, he may be the presumptive nominee if he's not already. So are they going to choose to go extinct, go down in their hatred of Bernie Sanders, or are they going to try to do better? Because look, they have a serious question to ask themselves. Are they going to try to be fair to Bernie Sanders, even minimally? Or are they going to discredit themselves permanently because, you know, they care more about their corporate advertisements? It's a serious question. It's a serious question. And Fox News is absolute trash. They're dog shit. If they went away, I think it'd be better for the country. But when they can plausibly say that MSNBC is laughably biased, that's when you know MSNBC has got to change directions. They've got to really, really do some soul searching. Their pundits have got to look in the mirror and realize, do you care about this country or do you not care about this country? Bernie Sanders is likely going to be the Democratic Party's nominee. So are you going to continue to hurt him after years of screeching at the top of your lungs about Donald Trump because corporate money is just that important to you? Or are you going to do what's best for the country? It's a question that is rhetorical because I already know the answer to it. This is a business. 
MSNBC is not interested in producing news. They're not interested in being objective or even neutral. They are all about maintaining the status quo because if Bernie Sanders becomes president, then they know that he's going after their advertisers directly. He's taking on Big Pharma and the health insurance industry, right? He's going to take on the military industrial complex. So they're fighting to keep the gravy train flowing and they don't want to stop. So they're not going to change unless they have no choice but to change. Now, we're already, again, seeing signs that they're starting to crack. But regardless, it shouldn't have got to this point. Like, it shouldn't have come to this. You shouldn't have been so shamed into, you know, doing at least a little bit better to where even Fox News is making fun of you. You should have been able to predict the rise of Bernie Sanders by having enough competent people on your sh on your programming, and you should have just at least been fair to him and not lied about his policies. But you couldn't help yourself. All of the people on MSNBC are just craving hacks, and they only care about themselves. So they've got to change. And over the course of the next couple of months, we're really going to see whether or not they do change and they do better. Um, if they want to survive, they're going to have to, but we'll see if they adapt quick enough. That really is the question and something that we should all watch for. So anyone who watches this show, I mean, you already know that MSNBC is trash. They're nothing more than the propaganda arm of the DNC and the Democratic Party establishment. But I mean, these last couple of weeks have really been something else. It's been truly just unbelievable. They've been somehow worse than usual. And this whole year, throughout the entire 2020 Democratic Party primary, they've been insufferable. But just within the span of these last two weeks, you had not one, but two MSNBC hosts, Chuck Todd and Chris Matthews, compare either Bernie Sanders or his supporters to Nazis. You had Dr. Jason Johnson, an MSNBC contributor, defend Mike Bloomberg, an oligarch. And on top of that, he went on a different show and referred to top Bernie Sanders surrogates as misfit black girls. You had an MSNBC reporter covering the Nevada caucus, sighing loudly as she tells you that Bernie Sanders was dominating. I mean, their credibility is tanking currently. And there has been so much criticism of MSNBC over these last two weeks because of their horrible coverage that there's been mass calls for some anchors to be fired or resign. And this has literally forced them to respond to this criticism. That's how bad it's gotten, which has led to this headline. MSNBC president Phil Griffin is doing his best to give Bernie his due. After a Sanders surge and a Matthews gaffe, MSNBC prepares to pivot with Bernie rally coverage, Bernie-friendly guests, and a mandate to seek out more smart pro-Sanders voices. The cable net confronts a new reality. He's winning, says a source. Now, let me just explain what's happening here. They're not having a genuine change of heart. They're not hearing out our criticism and trying to respond accordingly. This is a business decision. This is a business decision because this is a fight for their survival. If they want to remain relevant for years to come, they have no choice but to pivot, right? Because most of their viewers are Democratic-leaning. So if Bernie Sanders becomes the standard bearer for the Democratic Party and they continue to attack him, what happens? Their viewers go away. Like, if I just all of a sudden turned and I started attacking Medicare for All, what would happen? People who watch would be outraged. They would stop listening and my show would basically go downhill. I wouldn't be able to keep this channel going. So the same is true for MSNBC. If Bernie Sanders is the leader of the Democratic Party, 
then what are they going to do? Just continue to attack him and turn into Fox News? Of course not. They'd lose all their viewers. And sure, maybe they'd attract some conservative viewers, but not enough to keep the boat afloat, right? So they have no choice. This is a business decision. This isn't them, you know, trying to do better, right? This is them saying, oh my God, the writing's on the wall. We're dying. We're going to do better. We promise. Please don't stop watching us forever. So let's look at this article. This is from Joe Pompeo of Vanity Fair, who explains Griffin is taking the complaints seriously, according to network sources. After Matthew's comments on Saturday night, Griffin's phone blew up with an angry reaction from the campaign. Griffin quickly discussed the matter with Matthews, who then interviewed campaign co-chair Nina Turner on air minutes later. Sources also noted that MSNBC took Sanders' El Paso and San Antonio rallies live on Saturday, and that Sanders' people, like campaign manager Faz Shakir and former campaign manager Jeff Weaver, both received airtime on Monday. The Sanders team is in contact with our senior management one source said and they are heard phil is doing his best to give bernie his due now with sanders looking more and more like the presumptive nominee msnbc's coverage will have to shift to reflect that will they bring in more contributors that are pro sanders that's where the chatter is another insider told me as a matter of news you have to management is sensitive to it that he is now very possibly going to be the nominee he's winning i ran that notion past the network executive yes the race has changed over the last couple of weeks and we are going to reflect that and make adjustments he said one easy way to do that is to seek out more smart pro sanders voices from people who can make our coverage more insightful but the executive added their campaign like any other is do fair coverage not fawning coverage so make no mistake about it they're doing this because they have no choice they're being dragged kicking and screaming and did everything that they possibly could to stop this from happening but now that it's happening now that bernie sanders is looking like he's going to be the nominee either they adapt or they go extinct that's really what this is about and i honestly resent the fact that they are insinuating we want fawning coverage we've never asked for fawning coverage we have asked for fair coverage so don't try to pretend as if that's what we're asking you to do we don't want you to become the bernie sanders propaganda network we just want fairness that's all we want fairness and objectivity inform people don't make them dumber when they tune into msnbc that's it and you know to suggest that they don't give fawning candidates to other uh, fawning coverage to other candidates i mean you have been doing everything you can to prop up elizabeth warren and pete Buttigieg and joe biden so i mean spare me the bullshit we see right through you and if you truly want to do better which they don't this is a business decision but i mean if we're truly trying to improve and if you want less criticism for your coverage here's the first immediate course of action that you need to take stop comparing bernie sanders and his supporters to nazis bernie sanders had members of his family die during the holocaust and you have anchors saying his supporters are like digital brown shirts or that his victory is like when Na when Nazis conquered France. That's not acceptable. That is not acceptable. So start there. Start by not doing that. Second of all, stop lying about Bernie Sanders. You don't get to say that he doesn't have support from people of color. You don't get to lie and say that he is less electable than Donald Trump when you haven't cited a single poll and polls show the opposite is true. Stop lying about the progressive policy proposals that we're fighting for. Medicare for all, you don't get to say, oh, Americans don't support it when public opinion polls show the opposite. Stop lying. Just stop there. Stop lying. And that's 
the bare minimum. That's what you could do immediately. If you stop lying, then we're already looking at a really huge, drastic improvement. But you can't keep lying. Now, I want to go to a clip from Anand uh, Giridharadaras because he really did a good job at explaining why MSNBC's pundits shouldn't be hysterical right now. What they're seeing take place should make them feel more curious, make them inquisitive, make them want to try to understand what's happening because, I mean, clearly, they don't get what's happening right now. They don't understand why the Democratic Party is opting for someone that they clearly hate right? So he basically went on MSNBC, and I'm surprised it wasn't cut off, but he explained that they should be trying to do better, not because they're forced to, but because their job is to educate people. Their job is to inform voters and do political analysis. But the fact that they're just being hysterical, it's a bad look. Last night was a historic win that I think a lot of us are still struggling to understand it. It's not historic only because Bernie Sanders is now decisively proving that he can win in milk white America and in the emerging superpower of color that we are becoming. Something is happening in America right now that actually does not fit our mental models. It certainly doesn't fit the mental models of a lot of people on TV. It doesn't fit the mental models of a lot of people in the parties. It doesn't fit our cultural mental models. You have someone talking about, in a way we have not heard, genuine, deeper democracy, popular movements, um, human equality in a meaningful way, and, and a politics of love in the tradition of Dr. King, and winning elections in America, the United States of America. And I just have to say, and I, I've been, I've been um, encouraged watching you on air talk about your own rethinking of things, which I think we all have to do to be in this work. I think this is a wake-up moment for the American power establishment. From Michael Bloomberg to those of us in the media, to the Democratic Party, to donors, to CEOs, many in this establishment are behaving, in my view, as, as they face the prospect of a Bernie Sanders nomination, like out-of-touch aristocrats in a dying aristocracy. Just sort of, how do we stop this? How do we block this? And there is no curiosity. Why is this happening? What is going on in the yeah. lives of my fellow citizens in this country? They may be voting for something that I find it so hard to understand. What is happening? What is happening? This is a moment for curiosity in America. I think yeah. about this network, which I love, which you love, and I think we have to look within also, why is a lobbyist for Uber and Mark Zuckerberg on the air many nights explaining a political revolution to us? Why is Chris Matthews on this air talking about the victory of Bernie Sanders who had Kin yeah. murdered in the Holocaust and analogizing it to the Nazi conquest of France? The people who are stuck in an old way of thinking in 20th century frameworks in gulag thinking are missing what is going on. It is time for all of us to step up, rethink, and understand the dawn of what may be, frankly, a new era in American life. And he is exactly right. Like, all of these people on MSNBC, these are mainstream news pundits who make millions of dollars every single year, and they can't possibly understand why a Sanders presidency is so important. Like, this is life or death to a lot of people. We're counting on Bernie getting elected so we can get health care. So we can actually have a life and not be bogged down by student loan debt forever. This is life or death for a lot of people. So the fact that they don't understand it shows that they have failed at their jobs as journalists.
Look, I actually do believe in fairness and objectivity, and I will play Chris Matthews' apology because when he returned to the air on Monday after that meltdown that he had on Saturday, he actually did have a really, I don't want to say genuine apology, but I'd say a pretty solid apology to Bernie Sanders and his supporters. Take a look. Before getting into tonight's news, I want to say something quite important and personal. As I watched the one-sided results of Saturday's Democratic caucus in Nevada, I reached for an historical analogy and used a bad one. I was wrong to refer to an event from the last days, or actually the first days of World War II. Senator Sanders, I'm sorry for comparing anything from that tragic era in which so many suffered, especially the Jewish people, to an electoral result in which you were the well-deserved winner. This is gonna be a hard-fought, heated campaign of ideas. In the days and weeks and months ahead, I will strive to do a better job myself of elevating the political discussion. Congratulations, by the way, to you, Senator Sanders, and to your supporters on a tremendous win down in Nevada. Apology accepted. And I say that because, look, we are a movement that is driven by empathy. We are fueled by a deep desire for racial, social, and economic justice. So we don't want to bring anyone down. That's not the goal. And whenever, you know, we hear this talk of Bernie bros harassing people online, you've got to understand, we are fighting for our lives right now. Whenever you lie about Medicare for all, like, I'm sorry, but the pearl clutching, when you get corrected online, it just makes you look bad. So if you're willing to own up to your mistakes, apologize, and more importantly, do better, we will give you credit where it's due. Like in December or early January, I actually did a segment where I uh, said that Chris Matthews was doing a good job because he looked at the results, the polls in Iowa, and he said, look, Bernie Sanders has the best shot currently. It was an objective analysis. That's all we're asking for. Objectivity. That's it. Just be fair to us. You don't have to be the pro-Bernie propaganda network. Just be fair and objective and do good journalism. That's all that we're asking for. But the fact that it's come to this, the fact that they're now scrambling to try to save themselves after they've made a fool of themselves. I mean, you, you, Phil Griffin, you should have reined them in last year when all throughout the year they were predicting that Bernie Sanders couldn't last past August or that, you know, any time now his campaign is going to collapse. Like you should have realized that maybe the anti-Bernie bias was becoming a little bit too obvious. And you guys were showing your cards and making it so that way the Sanders supporters couldn't trust you. Or even, even you know, Democratic Party loyalists who don't necessarily support Bernie but would, in a general, can't trust you. Because you clearly have an anti-Bernie agenda, which means you have an anti, you know, a working class agenda. So look, just do better. It may be too late for MSNBC. Honestly, I don't know that their reputation can ever recover unless they replace everyone on air currently. But I mean, if you don't actually change course and just be fair at a minimum, stop lying, then um, I don't know what to say. It, it might be too late already for them. But if they're going to try, then I mean, that would be much appreciated because this really is not acceptable. Like their behavior is totally, totally unacceptable. And if I'm working for MSNBC, I'm ashamed right now. I'm embarrassed to be part of that network. So they've got to do better. And they're saying they're going to pivot. We'll see, but um, come Super Tuesday, if Bernie Sanders emerges as, you know, the undeniable frontrunner and the presumptive nominee, we'll see how you act then. If we see more hysteria, then we know that you're not serious. So after Bernie's victory in Nevada, I mean, 
he may be unstoppable. I think that you can currently plausibly make the case that he's already the presumptive nominee. I mean, he's clearly the front runner. That's undeniable. But you can argue that he's already the presumptive nominee. And by Super Tuesday, he probably is going to have this wrapped up. But if he wins South Carolina, I think that the odds of him getting an outright majority increase exponentially because with more and more momentum, it's like this snowball effect that just continues to build and build and build. And if he can win South Carolina, he could possibly also knock out other contenders. Now, let me tell you how important South Carolina is for Joe Biden. This is a must-win state for Joe Biden. He has basically staked everything on winning South Carolina. He's claimed this is his firewall. This is this is everything. If Joe Biden loses South Carolina, he no longer has an argument to make to his donors, who are already very nervous about his chances, and they don't necessarily want to invest any more money into a losing campaign. So Joe Biden has got to win to prove to his donors that his campaign has momentum, to survive Super Tuesday. And if he doesn't win South Carolina, there's a really good chance that he drops out before Super Tuesday because it would be that embarrassing for him. Now, currently, when you look at real clear politics polling averages, he still has a lead, but there's a new poll from NBC News and Maris which shows Bernie Sanders is within striking distance. Joe Biden is currently at 25% in South Carolina, so he's leading. But in second place is Bernie Sanders with 24%. That is absolutely incredible. And now you have Tom Steyer with 15% in third place. Pete Buttigieg in fourth place at 9%. Warren in fifth place, 8%. Klobuchar, 6th place with 5%, and Gabbard in 7th place with 3% of the vote. Guys, let me just reiterate here. Bernie is within one point of Joe Biden. And um, on top of that, this poll was conducted between February 18th and 21st, which means this poll was taken before he got the Nevada momentum, before he won Nevada in a landslide. And he'll most likely get even more momentum after Nevada. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, holy shit, Bernie can win South Carolina. Now, you can already argue that even if it's this close and he doesn't win, Joe Biden still can't prove to his donors that, you know, they should keep funding him because they're not going to pour money into uh, something that is just not going to go anywhere. So even if Bernie manages to tie with Joe Biden or come in a close second, you can still argue that, you know, it's over for Joe Biden. But if Bernie Sanders beats Joe Biden in South Carolina, it's over for Joe Biden. He can't possibly make a case to his donors or voters. Now, I want to look at Real Clear Politics polling averages because it does show that overall Biden leads with about a 5.1 point advantage. And according to 538, they are projecting a Biden victory by about four points. But what I want you to do is acknowledge that we can still win this. We can still win this. So if you are in South Carolina, you've got to go guns blazing, you know, uh, pedal to the metal, knock on twice the amount of doors, make, you know, phone calls if you don't live in South Carolina or not willing to go down there. If we win this, I mean... 
Bernie Sanders is just unstoppable. Imagine, we saw how loudly the media screamed and was hysterical, at least MSNBC, when he won Nevada by a landslide, even though they were predicting a Bernie victory in Nevada. But if there's an upset in South Carolina, there's no recovering from that for the other candidates. They might not make it to Super Tuesday, even though Super Tuesday is just a couple of days after South Carolina. South Carolina votes on Saturday, and then Super Tuesday is on Tuesday. So there's a lot riding on this. This is not a state that is must-win for Bernie Sanders by any stretch of the imagination, but we want to win this because we want momentum. We want a majority of delegates. So that way, going into the convention in July, when we're in Milwaukee, we don't have to worry about them stealing, stealing it from Bernie Sanders. If he can win an outright majority on that first round, we lock it up. That's it. That's it. Now, 538 projects that he has a 46% chance of actually securing a majority. So with Nevada and all that momentum, we increased our odds of actually getting a majority. But if we can win South Carolina, then on Super Tuesday, I mean, it could be a clean sweep. I don't know. And on Super Tuesday, another thing to look at is Bernie may beat Elizabeth Warren in her home state of Massachusetts. If that happens, that would be a political embarrassment that will last for years to come. I mean, it's going to haunt Elizabeth Warren throughout her career. So Bernie Sanders, I mean, if he can win South Carolina, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Just, it will be great. Now, as I tell you this, I, I want to really stress, we can never ever become too confident. We can't underestimate our opponents because they've already admitted they're willing to get dirty. They're willing to try to steal the nomination away from Bernie Sanders. There are some DNC members that want to change the rules so that way, even if Bernie gets a majority, they can steal it from him in that first round. I mean, these are all things that become less likely as time goes on and as he becomes more unstoppable. But still, we have to do everything in our power to win as big as we possibly can and overperform because we're going up against very strong, powerful, well-funded forces. We are fighting an oligarch. We're fighting other candidates who have super PACs who are bankrolling their campaigns with dark money, including Elizabeth Warren. So we can't afford to underestimate our opponents. We have to pretend as if we're down in the polls. We have to pretend as if, you know, we always are the underdogs, regardless if we're polling ahead in states. And don't ever get too confident or cocky. We have to pretend as if, you know, we're losing. With that being said, though, I do feel good. And let's just win South Carolina. Because if we do that, I mean, we're looking at a political earthquake, an upset that will be in the history books for sure. Listen, folks, I've been around long enough to remember that back in 2016, when Hillary Clinton was always the front runner, when everyone thought that she'd be the presumptive nominee, that any and all criticisms of her from Bernie Sanders supporters was almost universally condemned by the Democratic Party establishment. Because the logic was, look, if this person is going to ultimately go up against the Republican, then why would you criticize them and ultimately weaken them? Why do that? So I remember that argument back in 2016, but are they applying that same logic to the 2020 Democratic Party primary now that Bernie Sanders is the clear frontrunner and will likely emerge as the presumptive nominee after Super Tuesday? No, 
because nobody's talking about this. This is from Brian Schwartz of CNBC who tweets, Mike Bloomberg's campaign is preparing a media onslaught against Bernie Sanders. Opposition research, more digital ads, op-eds, and surrogate TV appearances are all in the works to attack the Democratic frontrunner. So where's all the Democrats who were so worried about weakening the eventual nominee that they harshly and sharply condemned any and all criticisms of Hillary Clinton? Where are those people now? I don't see them speaking out on mainstream media. I don't hear anyone from the Democratic Party speaking out and calling on everyone to unify behind Bernie Sanders. It's almost like unity was a scam to get us to shut the fuck up and not question the party apparatus and establishment and their favored candidates. But now that Bernie Sanders is on the cusp of becoming the presumptive nominee, we hear nothing about unity. If this were any other candidate, if Joe Biden were in Bernie Sanders' position currently, the calls for Bernie to drop out, calls for everyone to unify behind Joe Biden, would be so loud that you couldn't really hear anything else. But because it's Bernie Sanders, unity isn't that important. Because it's Bernie Sanders, all of a sudden people on mainstream media are contemplating whether or not a Trump victory would be better for the left, Democrats more specifically, than Bernie winning. All this talk of unity, vote blue no matter who, it never applied to them. It was always meant to censor and silence, ultimately, the left. Now, when it comes to Mike Bloomberg here, I don't understand how he's going to be able to fund op-eds. Are we going to get anyone who's writing a pro-Bloomberg, anti-Bernie opinion to actually disclose that they were paid off by Mike Bloomberg? Are we going to get that level of transparency? Are we going to see his surrogates disclose that they are, in fact, surrogates? Because back in 2016, Hillary's surrogates went on the air, and even though they were on the payroll of the Clinton Foundation, they pretended as if they were objective commentators, and they never disclosed the fact that they were on Hillary Clinton's payroll. So, you know, this was all something that we anticipated Mike Bloomberg at some point was going to target Bernie Sanders, and it's disgusting. I will never vote for him. But, you know, I don't even think we're going to get the transparency that we deserve here. And think about this. Mike Bloomberg, his campaign is falling apart. The only thing that he has going for him is all that money. He collapsed. He imploded at that last debate. A new poll from YouGov and CBS News shows that Mike Bloomberg is the weakest against Donald Trump. While Bernie beats Trump by three points, Mike Bloomberg loses to him by three points. And here we have Mike Bloomberg spending millions of dollars potentially to attack our frontrunner when we all know that if this were Pete Buttigieg or Joe Biden, there'd be calls to not attack the frontrunner, to unify behind the frontrunner. There is a double standard, and this is the way that it's always going to be until we win, until we take over the party. Now, look, when it comes to Mike Bloomberg, he's doing this because he knows that the writing is on the wall. His only hope, we just talked about this on Friday um, or Saturday, maybe, I can't remember. His entire strategy centers on denying Bernie Sanders enough pledged delegates to where they can go into the convention in Milwaukee in July and he can have superdelegates steal the nomination away from Bernie and give it to him. But with Bernie Sanders' decisive victory in Nevada, the odds of Bernie getting a majority of pledged delegates just went up. 
In fact, 538 is now showing that he has a 46% chance of getting an outright majority, which means he wins on the first ballot, which means there's no chance that they can steal it from him. But what Mike Bloomberg is trying to do here is just drive down Bernie's support enough, just dissuade enough people who are switching from Biden to Bernie and Warren to Bernie or Bloomberg to Bernie even to not support Bernie Sanders so all the other candidates can get enough delegates to make him the nominee. Listen, we have a responsibility as members of the left to speak out very loudly, not only against what he's doing, but to make it clear that we will never vote for Mike Bloomberg. Never vote for Mike Bloomberg because he and the Democratic Party establishment, they need to know that we will never legitimize this strategy. If you buy an election, we are not going to vote for you. I don't care if that means that he loses to Donald Trump. I mean, there's a serious discussion to be had about who's worse, Donald Trump or Mike Bloomberg. I mean, they're bad in different ways, but who is the overall greater threat to democracy? I genuinely don't know. It's an open question. So whenever Bloomberg is brought up, we have a responsibility. We have a duty, a moral obligation, I would argue, to speak out and say unequivocally, Bloomberg will never get my vote. I'm not voting Blue no matter who. I'm not supporting him if he's the nominee. If he's the nominee, I don't vote. Maybe you vote for Democrats, you know, in Senate races and House races, but to support Mike Bloomberg, I mean, if you support that, if you legitimize this process, this unprecedented event where a billionaire oligarch is going to spend a billion dollars to buy this election, then you're just asking for democracy to die sooner than it already is. Because Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg are going to do the same fucking thing. Worse, maybe... The, you know, the last Koch brother, I don't know if it's Charles or David, one of them's dead, but the last Koch brother is going to do this on the Republican side. And we're going to devolve into full-blown oligarchy. I mean, we're already functionally an oligarchy, but I mean, it's going to get to the point where only a billionaire becomes president. And we've got to speak out. We've got to say loudly and clearly, we'll never vote for Mike Bloomberg. Never Bloomberg. Doesn't matter if he's the nominee. Because I don't know what will be more damaging to this country. An oligarch buying that election or a fascist, you know, stacking the federal judiciary. Either way, we'll be hurt for decades to come. And if we're looking at harm reduction, I genuinely don't know who is going to inflict more harm on us, Mike Bloomberg or Donald Trump. So I don't want it to get to that. Get to that. And at this point, it seems like it won't get to that. But we just have to make sure that we're clear in condemning Mike Bloomberg and adding that caveat that we're not going to support him. If you are able to drive down Bernie Sanders' support by spending your money, something that nobody else in the race can do, no, you didn't win legitimately. Fuck you. You don't get my vote. Never. Never vote for Mike Bloomberg. And we've got to say that. We've got to make sure that this never Bloomberg movement is so loud that Democrats are afraid to put him up or steal it you know, away from Bernie and give it to him because the backlash will be so loud that the party can never recover. So, I mean, look, Bloomberg can spend all the money that he wants. I think that everyone sees the writing on the wall. It's probably too late and maybe he's successful at driving down Bernie Sanders, five, even 10 points. But guess what? Once you start to have a little bit of momentum, it's like this snowball effect and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger to where you know, you can stay in the race for so long into the convention, but the people want to beat Donald Trump. The Democratic Party's electorate realize what's at stake in this election and allowing, a, you know, a billionaire oligarch to just buy his way to victory. 
they know that that isn't going to improve our odds. And maybe there are some delusional people who support Mike Bloomberg. But at the end of the day, we have to make it very clear he'll never get our votes. Never. Doesn't matter if you're going up against Donald Trump. No amount of browbeating is going to convince us to support one fascist over the other. Not happening. So Mike Bloomberg's campaign is alleging that there have been multiple acts of vandalism at his campaign offices across the country. Now, the reason why I put the word vandalism in quotations is because some of what he describes as so-called vandalism isn't actually even vandalism. And second of all, I really stress that word alleged because even though we have really no reason, at least based on the evidence that we've seen, to doubt that these have in fact happened and you know it's not just something that his campaign did to make it seem as if he's a more sympathetic figure but i mean mike bloomberg is an incredibly manufactured candidate everything about him is fake he's bought his endorsements um he's funding astroturf so if we're putting on our tinfoil hats for a moment would it really be that surprising if his campaign staff uh, vandalize their own offices just so that way they can maybe gain some political points from it? I mean, is it unlikely? Yes. Is it completely out of the question? No, not necessarily, especially given the way that he's responded, because he's using this as an opportunity to attack Bernie Sanders. Now, let me remind you, he's been running ads alleging that Bernie Sanders supporters are harassing people online. So he's trying to construct this Bernie bro narrative to suggest that people who support Bernie Sanders are uniquely violent and uniquely mean, right? So once you kind of establish that narrative, well, doesn't it make sense that maybe a Bernie Sanders supporter did this? And he's calling on Bernie Sanders, basically, to condemn all of these acts of violence against his campaign headquarters, or acts of vandalism, excuse me, and there's no evidence that a Bernie Sanders supporter did this. But before we even get to that aspect of the story, let's look at these acts of vandalism here. Because it kind of tells us more about Mike Bloomberg than it does the vandals. For example, you have the words racist, sexist, GOP oligarch spray painted on the windows of this building. You have a broken window at one campaign office. You have racist oligarch fuck Bloomberg spray painted on this building. You have corporate pig spray painted on the window of this building as you can see here and then you have a sign that says eat the rich taped to the windows of this building in flint michigan and you also have a spray painted sign with the words oligarch leaning against this building so the latter two examples are not vandalism if somebody's just taping a sign a piece of paper literally to your building if they're just like making a sign and then leaning it against your building that's not vandalism. There's no damage to your property there. So that's not vandalism. It's not. Now, for the other acts of vandalism, is that technically vandalism? Sure, but simultaneously, what else are these acts doing? They're protesting Mike Bloomberg, who quite literally is a racist, sexist, Republican oligarch. You may not like these forms of protest, but they are signs of protest nonetheless. The public reacts very strongly to someone who they perceive to be damaging them. So whenever there is a racist in the neighborhood or a Nazi, 
the same thing happens. For example, this man in Iowa had Confederate flags and swastikas in his yard, and guess what happened? His property got vandalized. Somebody wrote Nazi scum in his yard. Are we supposed to cry over that victim as well? You may not like the type of protest that this is. People may think that vandalism is always going to be universally, universally bad, but there's some truth here. I am not saying that we should vandalize the property of Mike Bloomberg. I don't condone that, of course. But this is people speaking out against an oligarch who's trying to buy this election. And by showing us all of this, by showing the strong response to people who are against your racism and your sexism, this is kind of embarrassing. Like, if I were Mike Bloomberg, I wouldn't put this up. I wouldn't have shared this, but they're trying to make this into an issue, and it's embarrassing. And the worst part is that they freaked out over that sign that was taped to the building that says, Eat the Rich in Flint, Michigan. Guess who Mike Bloomberg donated to? Governor Rick Snyder, the individual responsible for poisoning Flint, Michigan's residents. So let's just put this into perspective and how ironic this whole situation is. Mike Bloomberg is crying victim because somebody dared to tape a sign to one of his buildings in Flint, Michigan, after he helped victimize the people of Flint, Michigan by getting that scoundrel, that corrupt pig, Rick Snyder, elected. No, they're not victimizing you in Flint, Michigan, Michael Bloomberg. You victimized them. You helped elect the individual who poisoned an entire city of people. So forgive me for not feeling too much pity for you, even though this sign hurts your feelings a lot, but I think that Robert Reich put it best. Cost of repairing Flint's water pipes, $55 million. Cost of Mike Bloomberg's ad spending, $505.8 million. America deserves better than an oligarch wasting his fortune trying to buy the presidency. Yeah. So instead of running for president, you could have just used your money to make a difference. But instead, you're in the city of Flint, residents of which you helped to victimize by electing their corrupt governor who poisoned them, and now you're crying victim because somebody taped a sign that said, eat the rich to your building. Unreal. And on top of that, he is with zero evidence claiming that Bernie Sanders supporters are responsible. And he's calling on Bernie Sanders to condemn this, literally. So as Christina Cabrera of Talking Points Memo reports, Bloomberg campaign manager Kevin Sheiky admitted in a statement that, quote, while we do not know who is directly responsible, Sanders and his campaign have repeatedly invoked this language and the word oligarch to describe the billionaire. Senator Sanders' refusal to denounce these illegal acts is a sign of his inability to lead and his willingness to condone and promote Trump-like rhetoric has no place in our politics, Sheiky said. So they have no idea who did this. We have no idea who did this. For all we know, it could have been Mike Bloomberg's own team trying to make him look bad, look like the victim. But nonetheless, regardless, he's blaming Bernie Sanders for this. Okay, so if you're going to blame Bernie Sanders for this, and you're literally going to call on Bernie Sanders to condemn something that he had nothing to do with, are you going to condemn the individual who threw a rock through Bernie Sanders' campaign headquarters in Seattle? Are you going to condemn that, Michael Bloomberg? 
because this isn't something that is unique to your campaign. This happens in a polarized America. Campaign offices are oftentimes vandalized. It's just a matter of, are you going to try to weaponize this issue to make you look better in a campaign that you are the one who's been divisive? I mean, you've been waging class warfare. You've been a Republican. So how dare you paint yourself as the victim? You don't dare portray yourself as the victim when you're the one who's being divisive. You're trying to buy this election and you're attacking the front runner currently. And yet you're claiming that Bernie Sanders is divisive? Unreal. So listen, every single person needs to say loudly and clearly that if Mike Bloomberg is the nominee, they will not vote for him. They will sit out this election because we cannot allow this authoritarian Republican oligarch to play this dirty and then go on to win the presidency. I think he'd get his ass beat by Donald Trump in a general, but he needs to know that everything that he's doing is not going to pay off. We're not going to allow him to buy his way into the White House. And if he is successful at doing that, we're not going to show up to support him. I don't care about this vote blue no matter who. Like, if you are that evil, then the difference between Bloomberg and Trump, I mean, I don't, I honestly don't really know the difference. Maybe Donald Trump appoints Supreme Court justices and federal judges that are more extreme than Bloomberg, possibly, but the impact that this has on democracy for years to come may be worse than whatever Donald Trump can do in four years, because after a Bloomberg su successful run, then we're going to see, you know, Jeff uh, fucking Bezos and then a Mark Zuckerberg run. Unacceptable. So either way, it's a lose-lose situation. And regardless, if Mike Bloomberg were to win or Trump were to get reelected, our country is going to be badly hurt for decades to come. So people need to really make it very clear that they are not going to support Mike Bloomberg. In fact, I think we're, we have this moral responsibility to speak out and say, we're not going to vote for you no matter what. I don't care if you're going up against Donald Trump. You could put Mike Bloomberg up against Satan. We're not voting for you. You will never get our votes because we do not condone you buying this democracy, buying this election, especially with how dirty he's willing to play. It's disgusting. So, I mean, he can cry the victim all he wants, but um, just realize that as people speak out and condemn him, they're telling the truth. You may not like the vandalism, the so-called vandalism, but these people are correct and they're speaking out against you. Maybe you should listen to the peasants for once, Mike Bloomberg, rather than just talking at them smugly like the oligarch elitist prick that you are. So, for whatever reason, Judge Judy is Mike Bloomberg's most prominent supporter and surrogate. And, you know, I say that not necessarily because he hasn't received other endorsements. Sure, he's gotten congressional endorsements. He's gotten endorsed from mayors in cities across the country. But she's the only authentic supporter of Mike Bloomberg who hasn't been bought off, as far as I know. Like, the individuals who are running for Congress, the mayors around the country who support him and endorsed him, they were all bought off. Like, he has contributed to them. He helped their political careers, so they're just paying him back for that, effectively. But Judge Judy actually believes in Mike Bloomberg's message, whatever that is. Um, so she really is his most prominent surrogate. The problem with that is she's not the best surrogate. Um, she doesn't do a good job at explaining to voters why Mike Bloomberg is good for them. But what you can see here when she talks about Mike Bloomberg is that he's going to be really good for people like her, who are very, very wealthy. And we've talked about this before, like her defense of Mike Bloomberg, it's borderline incoherent. And on television, she comes across as this confident, if not arrogant, you know, really articulate, eloquent person. But when she's trying to explain why we should vote for Bloomberg, 
it's incoherent. You know, she has nothing but platitudes. And when she was talking to a local Fox affiliate, she tried to defend Mike Bloomberg. She didn't do a great job, but she also took shots at Bernie Sanders and his supporters. And this is honestly like almost cringeworthy because she is just, she's so out of touch. Millions of people watch you on TV every day as a judge, and they trust your judgment. Why is this the first time that you've actually endorsed a presidential candidate? Because it was urgent. Because I really believe that America's in trouble. Everybody's angry, polarized, and it will continue to be polarized unless you have a president who has no agenda other than to do the right thing for the people that he represents. He's, Mike Bloomberg is not an ideologue. He's a doer. He sees a problem. He understands that if you have good education and a solid education as a youngster and as you grow, you'll have the tools to make it. Listen. Mike and I are the product of an American dream. Mike grew up middle-class kid, put himself through school. I grew up middle-class kid. I, I wasn't as smart as he was. I didn't, I didn't have. I couldn't get into good, to great schools, but I got into okay schools. I was born in Brooklyn, so I have Brooklyn street smarts. And I know that if you give children reasonable building blocks you give them a fishing pole they'll always be able to eat and he understands how to solve that problem he understands the genesis of it he understands how to tweak the things that are wrong with america america doesn't need a revolution it doesn't need a different it's the most perfect country in the world and those people that are trying to change it and revolutionize it, I don't have a chance because I'll fight them to the death. <laughs> don't get on the wrong side of the judge. <laughs> That's the message. That's the message. All right. Listen, Judge Judy is worth an estimated $400 million. At that point, like if you're that rich, why not just retire? Why not just, you know, throw your hands up and think, you know what, I'm going to sit this election out. I'm going to kick back because no matter what happens, the outcome of this election isn't actually going to impact my life in any meaningful way. But I mean, if this election does impact her, what, her taxes go up a little bit? Is that really necessary? Does that warrant you, like, coming out here and speaking in favor of Mike Bloomberg and against Bernie Sanders, who's clearly fighting for the working class? Like, is this what you want your legacy to be? Apparently so. And it's just, it's embarrassing. Now, she says that she decided to not sit this out and make an endorsement when she's never done that, quote, because it was urgent, because I really believe America is in trouble. So why is America in trouble? What are the issues that we're dealing with? She doesn't know. She doesn't explain that part. It seems like the only reason why she thinks America is in trouble is because she doesn't like Donald Trump, but at the same time, she doesn't think that a political revolution Bernie Sanders' working-class revolution isn't something that's good. In fact, it seems as if she thinks it's a threat. And she tacitly implied that Bernie Sanders is an ideologue. She said, Mike Bloomberg is not an ideologue. He's a doer. But I've got to ask the question, what has he done that's so great for the people of New York City when he was mayor? 
Stop and frisk? Banning big gulps? Vetoing the minimum wage? He illegally surveilled Muslims. I mean, he did that. He's sexually harassed at least 64 of his female employees. What exactly did he do, Judge Judy, that you think is so wonderful that you would risk your entire reputation on this oligarch? She doesn't know. This really seems like a fuck you, I got mine situation where she just doesn't want her taxes to go up. She doesn't think that the peasants deserve healthcare or education. She believes that if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then uh, you can make it just like she did, just like Mike Bloomberg did. And she says that he understands how to tweak things that are wrong with America. Except tweaking things is not going to suffice. We're facing climate catastrophe. Climate catastrophe. Thousands of people are dying every single year because they don't have health insurance. Tweaking the system isn't going to work. That's not going to make people less demoralized. That's not going to make them less susceptible to, radical, to radicalization, right? More neoliberalism is just further putting us on the path towards fascism. That's, that's just a fact of reality. And that's even if you want to claim that Mike Bloomberg isn't a fascist himself. Because I'm sorry, when you surveil Muslims, when you implement stop and frisk and you turn your city into basically a police state, I don't know what to call that if not fascism. Him and Donald Trump are fascists, albeit for different reasons and maybe to lesser degrees, but they're both fascists. One is arguably more dangerous in certain ways. The other, still dangerous. We just, we don't, we don't really know. So, I mean... Whatever tweaks that Mike Bloomberg wants to implement, it won't suffice. And she says that, you know, America is the most perfect country in the world. Now, again, the reason why she thinks that, the reason why she doesn't want a political revolution is because she's worth an estimated $400 million. In fact, in 2018, she just bought a $9 million mansion in Rhode Island. So, of course, she doesn't want a political revolution. Of course, She's okay with the status quo because look at how comfortable she is. She is living in a mansion. She doesn't want her taxes to go up. She doesn't want the peasants to have healthcare because she worked for it. She worked for what she has. So pull yourself up by your bootstraps, peasants. Go to law school and become a judge on TV and make a mockery of our judicial system. Do that. Do what Mike Bloomberg did. Just make $50 billion. Go ahead. Do it, peasants. Why haven't you done that yet? Like, this antiquated way of thinking is exactly why anything short of a revolution will not suffice, because the elites in this country are so out of touch that they can't possibly fathom why people would feel so desperate and radicalized at this point in time. And she vows to uh, fight them to the death, meaning Bernie Sanders supporters. Okay. Uh, Mike Bloomberg says, don't get on the wrong side of the judge. That's the message. Actually, don't get on the wrong side of... A revolution. That's the message that you need to take away. Because we're not going to allow you to buy our democracy. We're not going to allow it. We're not going to sit here and pity these oligarchs who have hundreds of millions of dollars who are clutching their pearls as they see the working class rise up and demand maybe a little bit more than crumbs. So Judge Judy is absolutely disgusting. And if she truly wants to fuck with the power of the people, maybe we organize an advertiser boycott of her show. Maybe we protest outside her studio. 
Judge Judy doesn't know who she's dealing with because Judge Judy, throughout the entirety of her life almost, has been insulated. She surrounds herself around yes men and yes women, and she's the judge, right? She's the one in control on her television show. Shut up, don't ever talk. Be quiet, peasants. She doesn't like that we're finding our voice in Bernie Sanders. But too bad. Tough. Even if we don't win this election, this movement isn't going away. It materialized, and it's not just going to evaporate into thin air. We're going to be here, and like it or not, we're coming for that wealth, Judge Judy. So I'm sorry if you don't want to pay a slightly higher marginal tax rate, but if you truly think America is the greatest country on the planet, then you can't allow the so-called best country ever, which is perfect, to have thousands of citizens die every single fucking year because they don't have health insurance. You can't allow people to drown in student debt because they just wanted an education to have a chance at success. Unacceptable. So I don't even know what to say. Judge Judy is just... Keep talking, because you're only further making the case for us. As more rich people speak out, as more billionaires go on national television and cry, you're only helping to make our case for us. Keep talking. You're helping us. All right, folks, so we've got the 10th and final Democratic Party primary debate before South Carolina and Super Tuesday, and it will be hosted by CBS News, so someone who's fairly more competent than CNN or even MSNBC. But I will say this, if you are a Bernie Sanders supporter, this debate is going to be challenging for us because every single person on that stage knows that they no longer have anything to lose. If you're Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, then you're hanging on for dear life and you've got to throw everything against the wall. And right now, I think a lot of candidates realize, if not all candidates, realize that this is a race between Bernie Sanders and everyone else. So it's going to get ugly. We're going to see some really harsh attacks against Bernie Sanders by Elizabeth Warren. We're going to see Mike Bloomberg and possibly Joe Biden team up against Bernie Sanders. And Bernie's got to come prepared. He's got to be able to deflect. Now, with that being said, I, I'm not willing to say that any one debate alone can fundamentally alter the course or trajectory of the Democratic Party primary. Because even if Theoretically speaking, Bernie went in and had a horrible night. He performed as bad as Bloomberg. Is it really going to matter at this point? The momentum that he has after winning Nevada, it may not matter at all. However, I don't want to, you know, take any chances. We've got to make sure that Bernie Sanders is able to not only deflect but counterpunch because this is going to be a moment where voters are watching and they're going to see or question who's the best to take on a Donald Trump. And looking at these performances, if they see someone like Bernie Sanders, who's able to allow these attacks just, you know, roll off of his shoulders and it doesn't hurt him, this is really going to prove that he is strong and has strength. So the individuals who qualified for this debate include Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Mike Bloomberg, and now Tom Steyer has in fact qualified. Now, look, here's the thing about Tom Steyer. I don't like this idea that someone was able to buy their way onto the onto the debate stage. Now we have two billionaires who bought their way onto the debate stage. But strategically speaking, maybe it's not such a bad thing that Tom Steyer is here. Because if Tom Steyer happens to have a good performance, then that bump, like whatever he gains, will be directly Joe Biden's loss. So if he comes out on top of this debate, hypothetically speaking, and he takes away 
two to three percentage points away from Joe Biden in South Carolina, then that could clear the path for Bernie Sanders' victory. And polls show Bernie's one point behind Joe Biden. So he's hanging on for dear life. He's got to win. This is a must-win state for Joe Biden. So if Tom Stair's presence there, you know, hurts Joe Biden in any way, he's helping Bernie Sanders. So in a way, it's a good thing that Tom Steyer is there. However, I don't think he's going to be kind to Bernie Sanders. I think he's probably going to be attacking Bernie Sanders as well. But we could see this dynamic where Tom Steyer attacks Mike Bloomberg, the other billionaire who bought his way, because Tom Steyer, after watching that last debate, he tweeted out that maybe Mike Bloomberg, you know, shouldn't be running in the Democratic Party because this isn't necessarily the right, the perfect party for him. Because, I mean, he's just too conservative. Everyone can see that he is more conservative than the average moderate Democrat. So he's just so out of touch. He's not in lockstep with the party. So if he can do that, then maybe it'll be persuasive. But here's what I think we can expect. When it comes to Joe Biden, obviously he needs momentum. I think what he's going to do is target Bernie Sanders and Tom Steyer. They're both right on his heels in South Carolina. And if he doesn't prevail, then he may be done after Saturday. So he's probably going to go after them. Bernie Sanders doesn't really have to be that aggressive. He needs to focus on combating all of the criticisms and attacks that will be flung his way inevitably. So he's got to be able to anticipate these attacks and respond accordingly. He's got to be, you know, quick on his toes. And I think he can. Like, he's a really good and competent debater. So I'm not really worried about Bernie Sanders. It's just a matter of, like, the volume and loudness of these attacks because he's going to get it from every which way. He is the definitive frontrunner. This is objectively speaking. Like, he's the one to be. So everyone, it's going to be closed out for Bernie. Like, they're coming after him. So he's got to be able, and I'm just really, really hoping his campaign preps him because this is possibly going to be brutal if he doesn't come the utmost prepared. Now, Elizabeth Warren, look, it may be too late for her. In fact, I would argue that it's probably too late for her, but obviously she needs a good night, and she had a lot of momentum after that debate because she went after Mike Bloomberg. If she can do that again and replicate that success, maybe she doesn't get wiped out on Super Tuesday. Maybe she can stand strong in Massachusetts, because if you're not paying attention to the polls, Bernie Sanders may beat her in Massachusetts. So if that happens, that would be just an embarrassment that will live with her throughout the course of her career. So she needs a good performance. I don't think attacking Bernie is the best way to go. Do I believe she's, you know, going to listen to me? Of course not. She's going to attack Bernie most likely. But if she focused on Bloomberg again, then she can she can have more moment, momentum because everyone in the Democratic Party doesn't like Mike Bloomberg. I'm talking about the voters specifically. You know, they see this individual who's trying to buy his way into the White House. This is a threat to democracy. So if Elizabeth Warren stands alone and once again bringing him down, I think that that can demonstrate that she's strong. Now, when it comes to Pete Buttigieg, look, he's got to change his strategy. The attacks on Bernie Sanders aren't working. It's making him less likable. He's coming across as bitter. He needs to just focus on policy. Like, stop being so aggressive. Focus on policy. Rather than saying what we can't have, what Bernie Sanders is doing is bad in your view, you have to put forward an agenda because whenever Bernie Sanders speaks at these debates, he describes his vision for America and people to judge at every single debate just, you know, talks negatively about the other candidates and says what we can't do, why Bernie Sanders' vision is bad, but he never presents his own alternative vision. And it's because 
He doesn't have a vision. He's an opportunist. He's an empty slate. You can fill it in with whatever, you know, he thinks is going to help him get elected. If he thinks that becoming a Republican is the best way to the White House, then we'll see him run as a Republican in 2024. This guy is, he's just an opportunist. He stands for nothing. So, you know, uh, he's got to change up the strategy. Will he do that? No. So if I'm Pete Buttigieg, I'm just trying to not come across as a smug asshole. And, you know, I'm trying to be less divisive because I think the writing's on the wall. He's got to see it. He's not doing well. He's not doing well at all. So just try to present yourself as more likable if you want a future in politics on a national level. When it comes to Amy Klobuchar, I think that her best course of action here is to focus on Pete. And, you know, if he's gone, if she can get him to drop out and she could just hang in there a little bit longer, she could possibly absorb some of his voters. But I really don't think anything she does at this point is going to make a difference. I mean, once Pete goes, she's probably going to not not be in this much longer as well. Okay, when it comes to Mike Bloomberg, he cannot have a repeat of last week. He cannot have that bad of a performance Otherwise, even if he's spending all this money, it may not make a difference because if you keep making a fool of yourself on national TV, I mean, people are going to see that you aren't the best to take on Donald Trump. If you can't handle these Democrats on a debate stage, then how are you going to take on Donald Trump? So he has been reportedly prepping for this debate all week. I expect him to be incredibly negative against Bernie Sanders. But if I'm Mike Bloomberg strategically, it actually makes more sense to go after Joe Biden because what you want to do is consolidate that moderate lane. So if all of these moderates keep attacking Bernie Sanders, but they're not coalescing behind one moderate and they're just taking each other out also, then I mean, you're just, you're helping Bernie Sanders at the end of the day. So Mike Bloomberg, I don't necessarily know what to expect here. I think that, you know, the pressure is on and he knows this. So maybe that can make him even more nervous. Whatever the case may be, he can't have as bad as a performance as he did last time. And, you know, <laughs> the other candidates have all got to once again, team up on him because it's unacceptable for him to be buying democracy. And just putting that aside, putting aside the principle here, he's just a bad candidate. He represents nothing. He vetoed a minimum wage. He banned big gulps. He had stop and frisk. You know, he made it so that way you can't feed the homeless in New York City. This is a bad person. This is an oligarch. So every single person should do what they can to knock him out if they truly want to win because he doesn't have delegates. Now, he's probably going to get a lot on Super Tuesday. But if they do enough to stop his momentum, then maybe someone like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg can hang in there. But I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. So you can look forward to my post-debate breakdown the morning after the debate. But I just really, really hope that Bernie Sanders comes prepared and knows what to expect. He's walking into a lion's den. And I said this about the debate before Iowa, but now more so than ever, he's close to locking it up. If he wins South Carolina, then going into Super Tuesday, he may be unstoppable if he's not already unstoppable. So every single person on that stage knows Bernie's the one to beat and he has got to come prepared and acknowledge that they're going to do everything in their power to stop his momentum. And that includes his friends like Elizabeth Warren. So he's got to be able to absorb these blows and counterpunch. And I think he can do that. He's competent enough to do that. It's just a matter of, you know, whatever damage is possibly caused, will it be enough to stop him? And overall, I don't necessarily think that that's something we should be concerned with. I think he's still going to do well um, on Super Tuesday. 
possibly win in South Carolina, but it's just a matter of let's not have a disaster of a debate. And if we can avoid a disaster, then I think we're still, we're, you know, we're, we're cruising right along. We're doing okay. So yeah, I'll leave that there. We'll just have to watch and see. All right, folks, let's talk about the debate. If you could even call it a debate. What was that? What was that? That was a disaster, and I'm not being hyperbolic when I say this. That may have been one of the worst debates, if not the worst debates I've ever seen. And that comes after the debate last week, where it was probably the most exciting debate that uh, I've ever seen. Now, I've got some good news and some bad news. The bad news, obviously, is that the debate was horrific. I hated every aspect about it. But the good news is that if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, nothing about this debate is going to fundamentally alter the course of the 2020 Democratic Party primary. Like, we entered this debate on a very clear trajectory with Bernie Sanders dominating on Super Tuesday, possibly winning in South Carolina. And that's not going to change because if you watch this debate and you're just like a casual observer, you don't really follow too closely what's going on. There's nothing that you learned from this debate about the candidates. Nothing that you could take away from that debate will make you more informed or knowledgeable when you pull the lever for one of these candidates. It was just a complete mess. Uh, the moderation, first of all, was absolutely terrible. It was non-existent for a good portion of the debate. The candidates, namely Pete Buttigieg, would not stop talking over each other, so you didn't even really know what was going on and the moderators allowed it to happen, you have an audience full of wealthy elites, and we'll get to that, booing Bernie Sanders, very clearly cheering Mike Bloomberg. So, in other words, did he buy the audience? Like, what's going on? On top of that, you have Bloomberg ads airing during the debate. It was it was atrocious. There was no substance. Um, I don't even know who to declare the winner. I think there were some pretty clear losers, but that debate was just a wash. You could have not had it happen, and we'd still be in the same place. I mean, what do, what do you even say about that? So I've got a lot to say about this debate, but first, let's talk numbers. When it comes to overall talk time, Bernie Sanders clocked in the most time at 15 minutes, 28 seconds. Mike Bloomberg came in second with 13 minutes, 33 seconds. Amy Klobuchar came in third with 13 minutes, 26 seconds. Elizabeth Warren came in fourth with 12 minutes, 53 seconds. Joe Biden came in fifth with 12 minutes, 33 seconds. Pete Buttigieg came in sixth with 11 minutes, 34 seconds. Tom Steyer came in seventh with seven minutes, and three seconds. Now, before we really get into the specifics here, I do just have to uh, note that I will not be able to play any clips from this debate. Um, and I mean, the good news is that I wasn't planning any additional segments because I don't even know what to really single out. But CBS News, they don't respect fair use. And I'm not just worried about getting demonetized because I would play clips for you if I were only getting demonetized. But I'm genuinely worried that they would actually block the video so nobody could watch it. And like a lot of effort goes into these videos. So unfortunately, I will not be able to play any footage, footage from this debate. I will be playing footage as B-roll while I speak from the last debate because with MSNBC, I don't have as much of a problem. But let me just say how disgusting CBS News is and why we shouldn't allow corporate, corporate media to host these debates like all on twitch uh the serfs progressive voice all types of indie media outlets were getting taken down because 
uh, for whatever reason, CBS News decided to hire a consulting firm to go after indie media personalities who were streaming the debate and supplementing it with their own political commentary, which is extremely problematic because, I mean, these debates... This is part of democracy. So for us to not be allowed to play clips from it and talk about it in and of itself is an issue. But while I'm on the subject of dogging on CBS, they should never be allowed to host a debate ever again. I mean, I thought that CNN was the worst, but CBS News just made them look like professionals over at CNN. That was absolutely atrocious. You can't allow the candidates to talk for 20, 30 seconds over another candidate like what's going on? There was a moment, I kid you not, where Pete Buttigieg must have been speaking over Bernie Sanders for 20 seconds, and you could tell that that was a strategy of his, but if you're a moderator, you can't allow that to happen. You have to stop all of the candidates, and you have to say, you're speaking, then you're speaking. You can't allow, like, four people to talk over each other, because it's just a mess. It's incoherent. What's the value as a user or a reviewer that you can extract from this debate? There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And on top of that, the audience loved Mike Bloomberg. So understand, he was absolutely a failure at that last debate. This debate was also a disaster. So what did he do? Rather than trying to do a better job at this debate... I mean, did he buy the audience? You've got to ask that because they were cheering at everything, including his cringeworthy jokes. And there's a reason why that audience hated Bernie Sanders, hated Elizabeth Warren, and booed them as they went after Mike Bloomberg. As this tweet from the Post and Courier explains, on television, you will see a polished presidential primary debate Tuesday night, the Gaylord Center Performance Hall full to capacity with donors and VIPs who managed to secure tickets from the Democratic National Committee. And as you can see, the cost to purchase a ticket ranged from $1,750 to $3,200. So obviously, if you're a poor person, you're not going to be able to attend this debate. So it was all rich people. Of course, they hated Bernie Sanders. Of course, they were cheering for Mike Bloomberg. How embarrassing is that? Now, when I tell you that Mike Bloomberg bought the audience, well... It was such an obvious thing that news outlets actually asked the campaign, did you buy the audience? And according to NBC News reporters, they say a Bloomberg campaign official says the campaign did not pay people to attend the debate and cheer for Bloomberg, as Josh NBC News reports. And then as you can see from Sam Finkelstein here, he says, maybe the fact that we even need to ask this is an issue? And look, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. They were like, cheering loudly for Mike Bloomberg when he said his line, he'd pause, and then the audience would cheer accordingly because it was something that was obviously supposed to be an applause line. I'm not buying it. Like, that was his strategy. Rather than preparing, he chose to just buy the audience, I'm assuming, but if he didn't buy the audience, the fact that there are very wealthy people there, and only wealthy people, in and of itself, is a problem. Now, going into this debate, Bernie Sanders... And everyone knew that he was going to be the target, right? And the problem with everyone dogging on Bernie Sanders is that they might have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves. Like, they were so anxious to attack Bernie Sanders that they tripped as they raced to smear him. Because their attacks were just all over the place, and I think that they threw too much to where nothing landed. Like, rather than focusing on one thing... They threw everything at the wall, and you can, like, smell their desperation through the television screen as you watch it, and their attacks didn't make any sense. So, for example, like, you saw them, for half the debate, 
complaining that Bernie Sanders is too far left, but then they spent a good portion of the debate attacking Bernie because he's not far left enough on the issue of guns. Even Mike Bloomberg attacked him for this. So which is it? If I'm an average viewer, am I supposed to believe that Bernie Sanders is too far left, too extreme, or not extreme enough on this specific issue? You have Amy Klobuchar trying to suggest that he's alienating. Bernie Sanders thankfully cited his favorability. You have Pete Buttigieg compare Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump and how miserable that would be in November. I mean, look, Pete Buttigieg is the Ted Cruz of the Democratic Party. He is revolting. Listening to him speak, I can't take it. Nobody likes Pete Buttigieg. And as this primary goes on, he becomes more and more grating on my fucking nerves. And I just, I can't take it. I can't take it. I don't want to listen to him speak anymore. This election is going to drive me nuts. <laughs> like it's going gonna, it's gonna to drive me nuts. And look, when it comes to winners and losers, I don't even know where to begin. Is there any clear winners here? Not necessarily. You could probably argue that Bernie Sanders is the de facto winner because nobody did enough to, you know, bring him down as he is the definitive frontrunner. But with that being said, um, are there clear losers? Sure. Nobody stood out. This was a clusterfuck of epic proportions, and I really feel miserable after watching it. Like... <laughs> I went into this debate just feeling really anxious and nervous because I was afraid that everyone would attack Bernie Sanders, but I, I leave thinking, wow, that debate was a train wreck. The very last portion of the debate, you had the moderator or one of the moderators wrap it up and say, well, that's it. And then she was interrupted and then they cut to commercial because they said, no, 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 we have one more thing coming back. And all they did when they came back was they said, um, okay, that's it. Bye. So they literally made us wait until after the commercial just to say, bye everyone. It just, it's so shameless. What a shameless cash grab that was. I mean, CBS, they are absolutely terrible. But before I, you know, just spend uh, however long complaining, let me go ahead and get to my winners and losers. This was really tough. I think you can spin this anyway. But if anybody tries to argue that, you know, objectively speaking, there was a, a clear winner or loser, I just don't see it. I think this debate was a wash. You know, if the debate didn't take place, it's the same as if it did. It changes nothing. Bernie's still the front runner. He's still positioned to do very well in South Carolina and dominate on Super Tuesday. And we're in the same position. But when it comes to losers, by far the biggest loser again, in spite of the audience trying to boost him, was Mike Bloomberg. On top of that, I put Tom Steyer in the loser category because he had an opportunity to really take votes away from Joe Biden in South Carolina. He didn't do that. Pete Buttigieg, another loser, because the entire debate, he kept talking over everyone. He kept trying to interrupt. And that is something that doesn't make you endearing to viewers. Like, it's extremely annoying. Like, if Bernie Sanders was doing this too much... I would be irritated. And I get that sometimes you have to elbow your way in, like to talk at these debates because there's a lot of people, but there's a line. And, you know, Pete Buttigieg absolutely crossed it. He did nothing to um, help himself. He's a loser. Joe Biden, this was his moment to really prove to voters in South Carolina that they should go with him and not with Bernie Sanders. His performance was just miserable. Now, when it comes to the OK category, I placed Amy Klobuchar here. She could possibly be in the loser category because she did nothing to help herself. 
I put Elizabeth Warren in the OK category. She tried to recapture the magic of that last debate by going after Bloomberg, but usually lightning doesn't strike twice in the same area, and we kind of saw that. You know, there was an awkward moment where she was asked if she would move the embassy from Jerusalem back to Tel Aviv, and she just said, no, both parties have to make that decision, and people kept trying to correct her, and she just kept repeating that same thing. No, both parties have to make the decision. But this isn't about, like, what Israel and Palestine wants. We're talking about our decision to move our embassy, so it was just awkward. And when it comes to Bernie Sanders, I think he, he had a phenomenal performance in spite of all of the attacks, um, but it's hard to declare him the winner, even if you can say he's the de facto winner, because you know that media is going to do everything in their power to spin it. If you've tuned in to CNN, MSNBC non-stop wall-to-wall anti-Bernie Sanders coverage. It's just a fucking shit show. You have CNN bringing on Michael Bloomberg's surrogates attacking Bernie Sanders. Um, it's just, I don't know what to say. Like, so obviously now I have no winners. I have no winners. Um, I don't think that anyone is truly a winner, but I do have one more um entity if you will that i will add to the loser category and that's cbs and the moderators i mean that was really embarrassing i as a viewer should not have to worry about moderation it should just be so good that we don't have to think about it you should be in control of the candidates so that way they're not talking over each other all throughout the debate but if you have three people talking at once longer than 10 seconds Something is seriously wrong with moderation. This debate is going off the rails, and it's your duty as moderators to steer it back in the right direction so maybe we can extract some substance out of this debate. But we got none of that. We got none of that, and this was really just demoralizing to watch if you are, I'm assuming, a viewer and you're still trying to decide who to vote for. Like, I don't know at this point who's still undecided. But if you watch this debate, you're not going to be helped with making your decision. Now, I don't have too much when it comes to the specifics here with regard to this debate, but some things stood out to me. So Tom Steyer, for a second time, claimed that he supports reparations, and I give him credit for that. But at the same time, you know, he says he supports reparations, but he invested in private prisons, which Joe Biden surprisingly called out. You have Mike Bloomberg talk about Israel-Palestine and describe illegal settlements as quote-unquote new communities. Just embarrassing. You have Joe Biden complaining nonstop about not getting enough time to speak. It really was irritating, but not as irritating as Mayor Pete interrupting everybody. You have Mike Bloomberg literally invoking 9-11 to make political points, and he did this on numerous occasions. And you have Mike Bloomberg claim that Bernie Sanders isn't electable because he can't win over moderate Republicans. Now, Bernie was correct to cite the polling data that shows he does beat Trump. He should have specifically, like, really emphasized that Mike Bloomberg loses to Donald Trump, according to a poll. Bernie wins by three points. Bloomberg loses by three points. So if anyone is a sure bet, it's Bernie Sanders. I wouldn't say that anyone is a sure bet, but if we want the best chance of beating Donald Trump, Polling indicates it's definitely Bernie Sanders. But to Mike Bloomberg's point about needing to win over moderate Republicans, that is a losing strategy. That's exactly what Hillary Clinton tried. And guess what? Moderate Republicans voted with their party. Republican Party voters are not going to switch to any Democrat. They're going to support Donald Trump unequivocally. So what you have to do is make sure that the youth get out and vote, that disaffected voters come out and they vote for the Democratic Party nominee. Do you honestly believe that moderate Republicans are going to vote for Mike Bloomberg over Donald Trump 
No, they're going to vote for Donald Trump because even if he may be rude, even if he has these mean tweets, he still does the same Republican Party policies that they all love. So, of course, he's not going to lose their support. But what Bloomberg has to worry about is not getting out the progressive vote, the left vote, right? Because he can talk about Bernie isn't going to win over Republicans, and I'd agree, but neither is he. But for Mike Bloomberg, he's not going to win over the left. I know I certainly am not going to vote for Mike Bloomberg. I'd probably not vote at all. But I mean, this is a real issue. Like, you shouldn't be worrying about winning over moderate Republicans. You have to worry about winning over your own party. And Democrats are so cocky. They think that young people are just going to come out and vote. And 2016 showed that you have to give voters something to vote for, not against. So Mike Bloomberg, I mean, he could say this all he wants, but it, it's it's such a losing strategy that in the event it were him versus Donald Trump, not only would he get clobbered at the debates, but Donald Trump would probably win in a landslide. And that's not even me being hyperbolic. Like, I genuinely believe Donald Trump would absolutely destroy Mike Bloomberg. Because the left isn't going to support him. Voters are just going to stay home most likely. What I liked is that even though Bernie Sanders was under fire, he still promoted human rights, the well-being of Palestinians. And when the, you know, inevitable Cuba question came up, he, you know, cited what Barack Obama said. And, you know, he said, look, I'm basically saying the same thing that Obama said. Joe Biden jumped in and immediately contradicted himself, which was so embarrassing. He said, no, Obama never said anything good about Cuba. He said, there's no aspects about Cuba that's positive. All he said is that they increased life expectancy. Oh, what do you think that is, you fucking moron? This whole debate was just awful. Now, th thankfully, we don't have another one until, I believe, March 15th. So after Super Tuesday, after South Carolina, we get a little bit of a break. Hopefully it won't be as bad, but all I know is that everyone was so anxious to attack Bernie Sanders that they just didn't do a good enough job at promoting themselves, and when you try to throw everything against the wall to see what sticks, sometimes you just overwhelm viewers and they don't know what to take away, so that's what I think happened here throughout this debate. Like, they didn't focus on any one negative aspect of Bernie Sanders. They could have all collectively agreed on talking about electability or something or you know but they didn't they just all took turns trying to dog on bernie and bernie did a fairly good job at i think you know thwarting off their attacks he absorbed a lot of their blows and i don't think it's going to hurt him i don't think that he won this debate because that really was brutal and we all expected it to be brutal but certainly they didn't do anything to bring him down and the only people who i really see coming away from this debate more damaged are uh, Mike Bloomberg. Don't know if that's going to make a difference because he has a lot of money. Joe Biden, I don't think he did enough to win over the people of South Carolina. He may still pull out a victory. Still, uh, you have Tom Steyer, who basically, his presence there made no difference. And, you know, going into this debate, if you watched my pre-debate analysis, I said that, you know, Tom Steyer's presence for the left is maybe good because if he does a good job at this debate, he can pull votes away from Joe Biden in South Carolina, I, I don't know that he did anything um, to actually do that. So this debate was completely pointless. I would encourage you to not watch this debate. And I will not follow up this video with additional segments as I usually do. Because again, I don't even know what I would talk about because there's nothing that really stood out to me. And on top of that, CBS News will probably delete all of the videos that I put up. Um, so overall... <laughs> The audience was stacked. The performance of the moderation was terrible. The candidates spoke over each other. 
Disaster. The so-called controversy surrounding Bernie Sanders' comments on Cuba with regard to their literacy program and healthcare, it's not really a controversy. This is a manufactured thing that the media is using to try to beat Bernie Sanders over the head with. And it's the same thing that we saw with the Culinary Union. There was this gigantic swarm of attacks from Bernie Sanders supporters on the Culinary Union. Meanwhile, actual Bernie Sanders supporters like myself don't know what they're talking about. And on election day, culinary workers ended up caucusing for Bernie Sanders overwhelmingly. So once again, the media is trying to go out of their way to make something out of nothing because, I don't know, to convince you, they're desperate, right? But this is what's expected from the media. What's not expected is members of the DNC to join the dogpile that we're seeing on Bernie Sanders. Why? Because the DNC is supposed to be neutral. But here we have the spokesperson for the DNC piling on and reciting the same exact talking points we've been seeing mainstream news pundits use all week to attack Bernie Sanders. He win when he praises Fidel Castro. <clears throat> Well, I'll let Bernie Sanders speak for his comments, but we are very clear in the Democratic Party that we speak out against brutal dictatorships like those of Castro, and we support the people of Cuba fleeing Cuba under that dictatorship. And we have been very clear as a party when it comes to that. I encourage all of these candidates, whether it be Bernie Sanders or anyone on that debate stage tonight, to go to Florida, talk to people in Florida, listen to their stories, listen to what they went through. And I think any candidate would benefit from that. And that is what is part of this primary. You need to go and appeal to a broad coalition of people, and I think that that will be relayed on Super Tuesday. Listen, I'm going to let Senator Sanders speak for himself, but what I do know is that he's bad and maybe you shouldn't vote for him and maybe you should vote for anyone but Bernie Sanders, particularly Bloomberg, since he donated $300,000 to us. <clears throat> what was the question? I mean, this is what we're seeing. This is uh, not acceptable. If you're part of the DNC, and she didn't name Bernie Sanders specifically, she tried to make it seem as if she was saying her own thing, but I mean, we know what's happening here. Now, uh, Tom Perez, the chairman of the DNC, who I'll remind you is supposed to remain neutral during primary processes, is going to say the same exact thing, almost literally. Well, listen, Chuck, I, I will let Senator Sanders and any, any candidate who speaks up on an issue uh, speak for themselves on those particular issues. What I'll say about this is the Democratic Party has been very clear in its opposition to authoritarian leaders. Uh, this is very personal for me, Chuck. Uh, my family came to this country from the Dominican Republic. They had to flee a brutal dictator. They got kicked out, quite frankly. And I can't look at, and nor can Dominicans look at, uh, the Trujillo regime and see anything but an authoritarian leader and a, an authoritarian era where human rights were not on the table. And, and Cubans and Venezuelans and people who fled Marcos from the Philippines and elsewhere see it the same way. And, and I think what's really important uh, from this is to make sure that all the candidates uh, travel, whether it's Florida to talk to Venezuelan Americans or uh, Dominicans or Cubans and, and listen to those stories because those stories are very similar uh, to my own story. Uh, what is abundantly clear are two things. Uh, the Democratic Party has been very clear in standing up to authoritarian regimes and this president hasn't. Uh, why he continues yeah. to send love letters to North Korea is beyond me. Yeah. Why he continues to uh, be Putin's poodle is beyond me. We're less safe because of that. Now, of course, you had to throw in some McCarthyist hysteria. Uh, he's used that Putin's poodle line before, 
And whenever he says that, it makes me die a little bit inside each time because it is genuinely cringeworthy because he's trying to be like funny or witty and more personable, but it's just, it's not endearing. Like you have to stop. And I don't know if you caught this, but when I watched this, the one thing that stood out to me is that how, hmm, it must have been a coincidence, but they seem to be saying the same exact things using the same exact talking points, literally. I will let Senator Sanders and any candidate who speaks up on an issue uh, speak for themselves. I'll let Bernie Sanders speak for his comments. The Democratic Party has been very clear. We are very clear in the Democratic Party. I mean, did you both rehearse this in front of a mirror? Did you send out a memo to everyone in the DNC? We see what you're doing here. I know that you think you're being clever by saying, well, look, Bernie Sanders speaks for himself. But, you know, as a party, you know, this institution, we speak out unequivocally against authoritarianism. Is that so? Then uh, why was the last president selling weapons to Saudi Arabia? Barack Obama, if I'm remembering correctly, was a Democrat, correct? Now, we'll put that aside and get back to Barack Obama. But just think about the argument that they're making. It's idiotic. They're literally saying... We will not allow for nuance. You don't get to, you know, say anything positive about the Cuban regime. All that we will allow is condemnation and criticism. You don't get to speak on their healthcare system and how it's actually better than ours. You don't get to speak about how they have a 100% literacy rate. No, don't say anything about that because they're a bad regime. And the narrative currently is that Cuba bad and don't ever congratulate them for anything that they do. Except in actuality, that's not really the narrative. The narrative is Bernie bad, and anything Bernie says is bad, and whatever we can possibly do to hurt him, that's what we're going to do. Now, circling back to Barack Obama, Obama said the same exact thing that Bernie Sanders said. Identical. He said that they have a good healthcare system, and they've been successful at increasing literacy. That's not really controversial. Co controversial. You can condemn every other element about the regime, but to simply point out that these elements of the Cuban regime have been successful, to deny that is to deny reality. As Bernie Sanders said during his CNN town hall, the truth is the truth. So the fact that they're trying to manufacture controversy out of this, it just shows how desperate they are. You can almost smell the desperation through the television screens because they just want to look for any and all possible things that they can use against Bernie Sanders because they have nothing. Look, they've been fear-mongering about Bernie's electability by claiming that there's this opposition research that would be devastating to Bernie Sanders, that would sink his campaign. Except, where is it? We haven't seen anything. It's almost like you guys don't have shit, and you're bluffing, and you are grasping at straws here. Now, uh, the website now, this compiled comments from both Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama, and it shows how they said the exact same thing. And I think that, look, if you're going to condemn Obama and say that he was also wrong here, then that's fine. But really what we're seeing is a double standard. Take a look. That's a huge achievement. They should be congratulated. They did not condemn what that they is, did. And we condemn that. And I, I said this to President Castro in Cuba. I said, look, you've made great progress in educating uh, uh, young people. Uh, every child in Cuba gets a basic education. That's, that's a, a huge improvement from where it was. Medical care. You know, 
the, the, the life expectancy of Cubans is equivalent to the United States despite it being a very poor country because they have access to health care. That's a huge achievement. They should be congratulated. very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it? A lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right, and we condemn that. You also have a track record of expressing sympathy for socialist governments in Cuba and in Nicaragua. Can Americans trust that a democratic socialist president will not give authoritarians a free pass? I have opposed authoritarianism all over the world. Of course you have a dictatorship in Cuba. What I said is what Barack Obama said in terms of Cuba. You've made great progress in educating. He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? That Cuba made progress on education. Yes, I think. Really? <clears throat> really? Yes, literacy programs no are bad. What Barack Obama Barack said Obama is they made great progress on education and health care. They have access to health care. That's a huge achievement. They should be congratulated. Barack Obama was abroad. He was in a town meeting. He did not in any way suggest that there was anything positive about the Cuban government. And I, I said this to President Castro in Cuba. I said, look, you've made great progress in educating uh, uh, young people. He acknowledged that they did increase life expectancy. They have access to health care. That's a huge achievement. They should be congratulated. But he went on and condemned the dictatorship. He went on and condemned the people who, in fact, had run that committee. The fact of the matter is, he, in fact, does not, did not, has never embraced an authoritarian regime and does not now. Okay. This man said that, in fact, he thought it was, he did not condemn what that they did. That is untrue, categorically untrue. What, what did you tell him? We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right, and we condemn that. I have condemned authoritarianism, whether it is the people in Saudi Arabia that the United States government has Cuba, loved for years. Cuba, Nicaragua. Authoritarianism of any stripe is bad. But Period. that is different than saying that governments occasionally do things that are good. Occasionally, it might be good idea to be honest about American foreign policy. And that includes the fact that America has overthrown governments all over the world, in Chile, in Guatemala, in Iran, and when dictatorships, whether it is the Chinese or the Cubans, do something good, Hi. you acknowledge that. Hi, Mr. But you don't have trade right. love letters with President them. Biden. Yeah. Now, when Obama said the same exact thing as Bernie Sanders, the collective response from the media and the DNC, members of the Democratic Party, was as follows. That's right. It's because this isn't about Cuba. This isn't about authoritarianism. This isn't about Fidel Castro. This is about Bernie Sanders surging, Bernie Sanders being the front runner, and them using whatever they can possibly use to attack him. And it seems as if they kind of realize that now the writing's on the wall, he may be unstoppable, but maybe 
if they can hurt him in Florida. Maybe if they can hurt him in Nevada by trying to pit him against the culinary union, maybe, just maybe, they can bring him down a few notches. Maybe open the door for someone like Mike Bloomberg or Joe Biden to get in there and, you know, win over him or at least get enough delegates to steal it from him at the convention. But here's the thing. We know exactly what you're doing, and I don't know how many people this is going to resonate with, but I think that most average Americans know that you guys are all desperate. You've shown your cards, like the just sheer volume of anti-Bernie hysteria on MSNBC on Saturday alone, the day of the Nevada caucus, was enough to really show even the most casual political observer that you all don't care about anything but stopping Bernie Sanders. I think that you've overplayed your hand here. And look, we're just going to shift from this to a different controversy, because in the span of one week, we've went from uh, Bernie hates APAC to Russia wants to help Bernie to Cuba. And this was after the Bernie bro myth and the culinary union. So there's going to be a new set of scandals next week, possibly more by the end of this week. But understand, these aren't actually scandals. These are manufactured controversies to try to stop Bernie Sanders at all costs. But guess what? Maybe too late for you guys. Seems like you're just going to have to accept that Bernie is likely going to be the Democratic Party's nominee, and maybe you should unite behind him and definitely vote blue no matter who this November. So as many of you know, the latest controversy regarding Bernie Sanders is the comments that he made about Cuba. Even though he condemned them for being authoritarian, the fact that he said they were successful at having high literacy that's a huge scandal. They're not desperate. You know, this is just something they disagree with Bernie on. They're totally not hacks. Bernie's bad here. Um, so since the hosts on The View absolutely loathe Bernie Sanders, you just take a guess in how they responded to this. Of course, they, uh, they had some really strong feelings, especially Whoopi Goldberg, who compared Bernie's remarks about Cuba to something Donald Trump said when he was comparing the left and the alt-right. Not even kidding. Take a look. They are, are not going to forgive him for this position. It's this, a this dictatorship. Yeah. There is nothing groovy about a dictatorship. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's just nothing good about a dictatorship. But doesn't uh, it, for journalists, but, for anybody. I mean, wherever it is in the world. We, we bitched at people for getting next to people who were saying, oh, you know, it's not so bad. It is bad. Yeah. But doesn't it concern you that, I mean, and again, this isn't, I think for Republicans in particular, the trying to sort of Re reanimate, reestablish what socialism means. He, people are always saying, oh, but it's like Europe, it's like Sweden. But the problem is he's saying things like Castro did some good things. He also defended Maduro, uh, Venezuela's strongman, a dictator, and he wouldn't yes. say whether or not he, he considered Juan Juado, excuse me, the legitimate leader of the country. So he's going around saying that like these oppressive socialist dictators yeah, but it are should, pretty good guys. But it should so, concern Republicans that Trump is this, in bed with dictators also, and they're trying to turn his country into a dictator. You can't what aboutism this like you just can't because again my problem right now is that I've heard rightfully so Democrats for the past three and a half years saying what you're saying yes dictatorships are okay. about his, his, mm -hmm. his coziness with Putin blah blah mm -hmm. blah but I thought that your party was supposed to be better than this then and again there's, there's so did still most a Democrats big, so did most Democrats fair enough yeah. but if you're talking about how Maduro's a good guy Castro did some good things for me it's no different than saying like hey Hitler was a good orator it's yeah. that insane it's yeah. that how about 
Mussolini yeah. let the trains run on time. Exactly. Well, that's exactly what it is. Yes. It sounds and insane. I, and I think yeah. that's sorry, but say that one more time. I'm sorry. They well, said that Mussolini made the trans, trains run on time, but meanwhile they were rounding up Jews and killing people in well, Italy yes. at the time. Well, and so then, no, that's and, not a good thing. And that's why I think in the debate tonight no. we're going to hear this. We're going to hear yes. it over and over and over again. We should also hear, I think, about his NRA record. I think we should also hear about how he's going to pay for Medicare. Right. You know, he is the front runner now, yes. but these are real But to not care about Florida and Cubans in Florida and Cuban Americans in Florida is particularly. But he said they were bad guys. He said Fidel was a bad guy. He was all he was saying was there's this one thing no that they did. But he's, and American he's, voters don't understand matter. nuance. They yes, hear they communism. No, no, they, no, no. This is there's no way around that. This is as bad as as you know who's saying they were good people yep. on both sides. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. There's no way to get. I don't it, agree. Oh, I do. Once you start saying, well, you know, you know. Hitler wasn't so bad because but he, he didn't say that. But no, he didn't say that. But to a Cuban person, yep. yeah. is just as bad. I agree. It's Cuban just as bad. bad. Cuban refugees who lost everything in Cuba because of Castro. Yeah, it's as bad. Yeah. Yep. It's okay. as bad. You can't lie out his literacy program and not, not highlight the fact that he's a We're all on the same page with this. Killer. What a day. Yes. He's um, dead now. Fidel <laughs> is dead. He is dead. Fidel is dead. His brother will be dead soon. The whole thing is going to change very soon. Anyway. Well, let's Hopefully. hope so. Let's yeah. hope so. Okay. Yikes. <laughs> so, I mean, first of all, let me just say good job, Joy Behar. She's usually terrible as well, but at least in this instance, she was reasonable. But Whoopi Goldberg said this is as bad as you-know-who saying they're good people on both sides. It's the same thing. Really? Really? Trump was equating white supremacists with left-wing protesters. Bernie is saying Cuba overall, their regime is dictatorial. And I disapprove of that, but I think it's good that they've managed to increase literacy rates. And you're saying those two are the same thing? She goes on to say, once you start saying Hitler wasn't so bad because dot, dot, dot. She went there. She went there. <laughs> I, like, I can't even find the energy to be angry anymore because they've been attacking Bernie Sanders just generally in the media so much that you just can't not tune out, right? Like, it, when you see, like, one isolated example of somebody saying something stupid about Bernie, you know, he makes my skin crawl, he's unlikable and disheveled. Sure, those isolated instances are irritating. But at the same time, like, if everybody's criticizing Bernie Sanders, then functionally, nobody's criticizing Bernie Sanders. It's all just noise at this point, right? So I, I'm not even outraged. It's just, like, I want you to remember the strong response that Whoopi Goldberg had to Bernie Sanders saying that about Cuba. Because we've got a clip to tell you exactly what she said when Obama said the same exact thing. But before we get to that, I've got to respond to Meghan McCain. Um, so she criticized Bernie Sanders because he claims it's like, you know, Scandinavian socialism. But here he is defending Maduro in Venezuela and not saying whether or not he considers Juan Guaido the legitimate leader of Venezuela. 
So I don't know if Meghan McCain knows this, but the United States government has a history of overthrowing regimes in South America. And Venezuela is just another government that we're trying to overthrow. Like that guy who she's referring to, Juan Guaido, he just declared himself the president unilaterally and then we recognized him as the president. But yet we claim to care about democracy and while we are trying to legitimize this undemocratic coup, we're saying we care about democracy, rah-rah democracy. When in actuality... They've got a lot of oil. In fact, John Bolton, when he was Trump's national security advisor, what did he do? He admitted on Fox News, you know, it'd be great if we allowed American oil companies to get in there and take their oil. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But Meghan McCain, it just shows that she is ahistorical and quite frankly stupid. But um, getting back to Whoopi Goldberg, she, again, had a very strong response to what Bernie Sanders said here, specifically because, you know, look, a dictatorship is a dictatorship. There's nothing, nothing groovy about that. Unequivocally, never ever praise a dictatorship under any circumstances. Except, fellow podcasters Let the Madness Begin tweeted this out. The internet has a long memory. Amazing how easily they were able to wax poetic defending Obama, right? And they... <laughs> They linked to a video where Whoopi Goldberg was defending Obama because when Fidel Castro died, he said some good things about Cuba and he wasn't harsh enough in his condemnation of Fidel Castro. Watch very closely what Whoopi Goldberg says here because she doesn't feel as strongly about defending a dictatorship uh, in this clip as she did in the previous clip that we saw. The world is still reacting to the death of Cuban dictator Fidel Castro, who died on Friday at 90. Now, Cubans are either dancing in the streets in Miami or they're crying in the streets in Cuba itself. Now, some critics are saying President Obama should have come out harder against the brutality of Castro's regime in his statement. Do you think he should have said, after just getting the doors open, allowing for people to go, see family, do stuff, do you think he should have said, and you're a bonehead, or was this the proper way to deal with this, given okay. all of this? Well, you know, you can. I think you have I to listen call to, I listen to you, and I'm saying, diplomatically, if you're trying to keep... I'm sorry, baby. If you're trying to keep the lines of communication open and you're trying to keep a flow going, I think that's the way you do it. I went to Cuba last April. And um, it's interesting. I mean, they have a 100% literacy rate there. So everybody gets a free education. Everybody has top-of-the-line medical care. So everyone's healthy. Top-of-the-line? Pretty good. Yeah. I feel like, okay, he said, yeah, man is dead. The Cuban people, the Cuban people who are there are mourning him. They are mourning him. A lot of those people, of them, no. a lot of them are mourning well, and him. And they're still under a dictatorship. The people, they're under a <laughs> well, dictatorship. Right, they have, let's be but clear. That's, but that's the point. But look what's happening with the Cuban people who fled that regime. They're yes. celebrating. Yes, they're in they, Little Havana yes, celebrating. But they're, but they're not here celebrating. But, that's my point. My you, point is well, they think, are there. Wait a minute. Yeah. They are there. You know, and he is talking to the people of Cuba. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not arguing about whether he's a, a monster or not. Right. I'm saying to you that what Obama did was what a president is supposed to do. Not in the, my opinion. I, I understand not that. The people who fled Cuba were in good shape in those days. They had they had jobs. They were doctors. They were middle Talk class people. If uh, Obama is being the statesman that he is, you have to think as a leader of the people that are there now. Yes. And I suspect and that's my that's point. That, but I think what the president was doing was not to to, to poop on the people who are mourning him back there. Like Elian Gonzalez says he was a father figure to me. We can't understand that, but we don't live there. Let me get this straight. 
Obama good, Bernie bad. If Obama says it, good. If Bernie says the same thing, bad. Because Bernie bad, Obama good. That's the level of political analysis that you can expect when you tune into The View. Obviously, this proves that Whoopi Goldberg very obviously is a political hack, and I don't even really want to call her a hack because I just think that she doesn't think deeply about politics. Like, she often likes to scold the left. I remember when AOC was elected, she scolded Justice Democrats for uh, not doing our homework about Nancy Pelosi and how he she got that... that Obama bill Obama bill through like she couldn't even remember the Affordable Care Act so she's someone who's just like an average consumer of political news with that being said I can't give her a pass because she's on this national platform and her views on politics reaches millions of people every single day so you can't not be educated you can't not form very intelligent well-researched views on politics if you're going to talk about it whoopee I mean, think about what she said here. Diplomatically, if you're trying to keep the lines of communication open and you're trying to keep a flow going, I think that's how you do it. You've got to give them a little bit of praise. But wait, I thought you said it was bad to praise a dictatorship in any circumstance. This is what she said about Bernie. It's a dictatorship. There's nothing groovy about a dictator. But when Obama does it, well, you know, diplomatically speaking, maybe we can... Let them praise them a little bit because you just want to keep the lines of communication open. On top of that, she said, I'm not arguing about whether he's a monster or not. I'm saying to you that what Obama did is what a president is supposed to do. So it's fine if Obama does it, but it's not okay if Bernie does it. This is hackery to a level that is just brazen. And she probably doesn't remember saying that because, again, I don't think that she has like a core political ideology or any driving philosophy she just kind of shoots from the hip and this just shows what a hack she she is but like oh the worst part the worst part was when joy behar said they have a hundred percent literacy rate there so everybody gets a free education everybody has top of the line medical care and everyone is healthy now when joy behar said this did Whoopi goldberg scream at her for praising a dictatorship no she nodded along in agreement line medical care so everyone's healthy american politics is exhausting it's exhausting i miss the times when politics was boring and nothing was happening like in fact politics should be boring right politics and political systems are functioning well when things are boring but in the United States, we see this. Like, this isn't just a one-off. Whoopi Goldberg isn't uniquely hackish here. Everyone in mainstream media is the same way. Like, I just played a clip of uh, Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders saying the same thing about Cuba and how uh, the response has been completely different. Bernie Sanders is universally condemned by the media and members of the Democratic Party establishment, even the DNC, Tom Perez, their spokesperson came out when they're supposed to remain neutral to condemn basically what Bernie Sanders said, but Obama says the same thing. Crickets. Not controversial at all. So, I just, I don't even know what to say anymore. <laughs> if you watch The View unironically, please stop. You're making yourself a less educated voter because nine times out of ten, no, 
99 times out of 100, if you tune into The View, you're going to come away less informed than if you just hadn't watched. Like, there was a study, I want to say it was back uh, from 2014, 2015, and I wish I could remember the university who conducted it, but they found that people who watch Fox News are less informed than people who watch No News. I would guess that the same is true for The View. I mean, what do you get from this? What value can you extract politically? Can you honestly say that you're learning anything? They say the same thing that's said on MSNBC and CNN, albeit worse. They take it like to the next step and say it in a dumber way somehow. And for whatever reason, uh, Whoopi Goldberg is always talking about pooping and peeing. She likes to use that. It just, it's insufferable. And the show really, like, it, it's bad. Um, they need to bring on somebody who is at least mildly, mildly intelligent when it comes to politics. Like, get some diverse opinions. Because if you truly want the views of normal Americans to be reflected, that's the whole point, right? Then bring on a democratic socialist. Bring on someone who isn't just going to parrot whatever they hear on MSNBC. But, I mean, that's really asking for too much because at the end of the day, all of these people hate Bernie Sanders because they have class solidarity. They're multimillionaires. Whoopi Goldberg has a lot of money and probably doesn't want her taxes to be raised. So she doesn't care that she's being a shameless hack by condemning Bernie for something that she praised Obama for. You know, it doesn't matter to them. Everything boils down to their own self-interest and they know that Bernie would raise their taxes or they just don't care about the poor people in this country who are suffering. So they're going to attack the one person who would actually be a fighter for the working class because it makes them feel better and would, you know, uh, produce a better outcome politically for them. It's just, it's grotesque and I really hope that more people call this out. But, you know, ideally, less people will watch it. So uh, this isn't an issue, right? So, so less people are getting... Uh, uninformed by tuning into The View and hearing them just espouse horrible opinions. And look, usually it's Meghan McCain who's the worst one, and she's still bad, but on this panel, Whoopi Goldberg, I mean, she was by far the worst with how hyperbolic she was in comparing Bernie's remarks to Trump's remarks after Nazis were carrying tiki torches. Like, Jesus Christ. So all throughout the 2020 Democratic Party primary, we were told by pundits in the mainstream media that, you know, we can't vote for someone like Bernie Sanders because he's too far left and he's just not electable. So you really instead should opt for someone like Joe Biden because he's definitely electable. Except now that more and more people are voting, they're realizing that they're not actually receptive to that message. And as more and more polls show that Bernie's actually the strongest against Donald Trump, I mean, that argument now has no legs to stand on. It never did, but now more so than ever. So what we see is the media quickly trying to drum up some new narrative to concern troll about Bernie Sanders' chances in hopes that they, you know, have some way of stopping Bernie Sanders. So the argument that they're using now is that if you vote for Bernie Sanders, maybe he can beat Donald Trump. But think about the effect that he'll have on down-ticket Democrats who are running in these really tight races for the House and Senate. The problem is that um, this also doesn't have any legs. One, because it's not backed in any statistics whatsoever. And two, because Democrats are now saying, actually, that's not true. Because understand, if you are in Democratic leadership, if you're you know, a Democratic senator, you don't want to spook the donors. You don't want to tell them that, hey, if this guy who's probably going to be the nominee is going to hurt all of us, they're not going to donate to your campaign because these campaign contributors, they donate 
oftentimes with the expectation that they'll be able to buy influence. So if they think that you're going to lose, they're not going to donate to you. So Democrats have a vested interest in making it seem as if, you know, the House and the Senate aren't lost causes. And on top of that, perhaps more importantly, they are embracing Bernie Sanders to an extent. They're not endorsing him yet, right? But members of the Democratic Party establishment are not running away from Bernie Sanders as they previously were. So it's really nice to see this narrative get debunked as quickly as it came up. But just watch what Chris Murphy said in an interview with Jake Tapper on CNN. He dismissed this notion that Bernie Sanders isn't electable, and he also dismissed the notion that Bernie Sanders would hurt down-ticket Democrats. Do you have any concerns about Bernie Sanders as a Democratic nominee in terms of his ability to beat President Trump in November, or how much he might hurt down-ballot uh, Democrats uh, who are in more moderate districts? I do not. I think Bernie Sanders will beat Donald Trump. Uh, I think Joe Biden would beat Donald Trump. I think Elizabeth Warren would beat Donald Trump. Uh, what we need is a candidate who has a base of enthusiastic supporters, uh, who's authentic, who speaks truth to power, who can throw a punch and who can take a punch. I, I think anybody that's polling in the top four or five fits that bill. Um, but uh, Bernie's base of support, the enthusiasm behind him, um, I think speaks to the strength of his candidacy, both in the primary, but as a general election candidate as well. Are you, it, that was very strong. I mean, are you endorsing him? Or are you supporting him? No, I'm not endorsing anyone. I think that this primary is going to be a test of who is ready, who's tough enough to take on President. So this is a really big deal because previously, you know, when this question was posed to a Democrat, and to be fair, I don't know what Chris Murphy said before, but when this question was previously posed to Democrats, their answer usually was, well, you know, let's just wait and see who wins and we'll go from there we'll wait and see how the process will play out but now they're actually responding directly to the prospect of bernie sanders becoming the nomination which tells us a key thing that they're starting to grapple with the reality of a bernie nomination and they know that the writing's on the wall he may very well be the presumptive nominee after super tuesday and they can no longer trash him. Otherwise, all of this enthusiasm that's behind him isn't going to help them, right? And you want to ride on Bernie Sanders' coattails. And Chris Murphy was correct to point out that Bernie has a lot of enthusiasm behind him. So if this person with a massive movement has all of this energy behind him and you start dogging on him... Well, that's just, that's not going to help your case. And I don't know if he's up, you know, for re-election, to be fair, but it hurts Democrats if they dog on the person who's at the top of the ticket. So they're starting to accept the reality that Bernie Sanders may very well be the Democratic Party's nominee. This is huge. And it may seem like I'm reading too much into this, but hold, because I've got more on that. But I want to get to a specific quote from Chris Murphy here. He says, Bernie's base of support... The enthusiasm behind him speaks to the strength of his candidacy in the primary and the general election as well. And this right here, like I shouldn't have to give him credit for saying this because it's just common sense. But yeah, it doesn't take a Democratic strategist who's paid seven figures a year to tell you that Democrats win elections when turnout is high and the base is excited to come out and vote. That's what led Obama to victory, and that's what's going to lead Bernie to victory if he's at the top of that ticket. So this is really what it's all about. Like, all this worry about Democrats losing the House and the Senate if Bernie Sanders is at the top of the ticket, they should be enthusiastic about him being at the top of the ticket because if he actually brings out this base that he's trying to bring out, younger voters, disaffected non-voters, then guess what happens? When they're already out to vote for Bernie Sanders, they're going to vote down the ticket for Democrats in the House and the Senate, and Bernie would campaign for them 
if he's the Democratic Party nominee. So it'd be moronic for them to continue dogging on Bernie Sanders. And the fact that he is so close to clinching this nomination and the way that they are responding tells us that really this may become a reality soon. But the real question is, what are Democratic Party leaders saying? What's Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer saying? Well, pretty much the same thing. They're not running away from Bernie Sanders. They're grappling with the reality of a Bernie Sanders nomination. As Marty Johnson of The Hill reports, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Wednesday said she would be comfortable with Senator Bernie Sanders as the Democratic presidential nominee in November. The Congresswoman was asked the question as she was leaving a closed-door meeting in the House basement Wednesday morning. She replied with one word, yes. Other congressional Democrats have balked at the idea of Sanders, a longtime independent and self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist, being the party's nominee in the general election. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on Tuesday also also suggested that he would be comfortable with the Vermont senator as his party's nominee. Look, the bottom line is very simple. Schumer said Tuesday when asked about Sanders' praise of former Cuban leader Fidel Castro's literacy program. We have a lot of strong nominees. I'm not supporting one over the other, but I think every one of them will beat President Trump, he said. So first of all, again, this is partially tactical because they don't want to spook donors. They don't want to make it seem as if they're going to lose under any circumstances. But second of all, you have to listen to the words that they're using. They're directly responding to these questions. When Nancy Pelosi was asked, would you, be would you be comfortable with Bernie Sanders as the Democratic Party's nominee? She says, yes. She's not trying to pivot and say, well, look, it's still early in the process. We'll wait to see how it plays out. She's answering directly, which tells you this may be a watershed moment where the Democratic Party is now having to pivot. Like, they're not going to embrace Bernie Sanders with open arms. They will probably still try to steal it with him at the convention in Milwaukee, but they know there's a very large possibility that Bernie Sanders could become the Democratic Party nominee. Whether he wins a very large plurality or outright majority, they know it's possible, if not likely. So now they're starting to pivot. They're going to have to grapple with the reality, like it or not, that Bernie Sanders may be the new leader of the Democratic Party, and, you know, even if deep down it kills them, well, the fact remains that they have no choice in this matter. The base has spoken, and you can only piss off the base for so long. So now, in spite of the mainstream media saying over and over again that Bernie's not electable or that Bernie Sanders is going to hurt down-ticket Democrats, you have the leaders of the Democratic Party Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi come out and say, I'm fine with Bernie as the nominee. This really is huge. And I know that to people who don't follow politics as much as I do, this seems insignificant, but it really is a big thing. For them to not pivot here, for them to just say, sure, I'm comfortable with Bernie, they know it's coming. And let me remind you, Nancy Pelosi was part of the early 2019 How to Stop Bernie Sanders meetings with Pete Buttigieg and uh, Neera Tanden and also Chuck Schumer, I believe, and Terry McAuliffe. So she doesn't want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. This is something that she's saying now because she doesn't have a choice. You can't spit in the faces of people who are enthusiastically supporting your party's nominee, who's the new leader of your nominee. That would hurt your chances as well. And Nancy Pelosi, if she cares about anything, it's raising a lot of money. It's raising a lot of money. So if donors see that you piss off the base and they think you might lose, well, they're not going to donate to you. Nancy Pelosi is well aware of this. So um, now getting to that whole new talking point about 
Bernie Sanders will hurt down-ticket Democrats? On MSNBC, of all places, I saw the best debunking of this new talking point, and it came from uh, Chris Hayes, who is probably the most sane person on MSNBC. Just look at some of the evidence that we have, and I'm telling you, it's not in the data. It just isn't. Here are the head-to-head matchups between President Trump and the Democratic presidential candidates. He is consistently, in poll after poll after poll, at or near the top of all of them. While the candidates who are characterized often as more electable are lower. Sanders has higher favorability ratings than any other Democratic presidential candidate in the field. His campaign has raised more money. His campaign's cash on hand in the latest FEC filing more than doubled the other non-billionaire candidates. And his ability to raise money is not nothing when it comes to electability and possibly a billion dollars being dropped on his head. Now, there are swing district congressional members in Congress who really do worry about Sanders' effects on them, about being dragged down on those down-ballot races. And I got to say, they might be right. They know their districts well. They also might be wrong. I I don't know. I I do know I definitely heard that a lot in 2016 from a lot of swing Republican members. As political scientist Kyle Kondik points out in the New York Times op-ed, those fears about down-ballot drags might be overstated. But I'm open to the data. We'll see. I mean, look, left-wing candidates sometimes lose. They sometimes get drubbed. George McGovern wasn't a left-winger. He was a liberal, but he famously lost in a landslide defeat to Richard Nixon in 1972 after his insurgent progressive campaign managed to capture the Democratic Party nomination. And that's a trauma that has stayed with people for generations, understandably so. If you can point me the data that we have where Sanders is seven points behind in head-to-head matchups with Trump, I think there'd be real reason to worry. But it's just not what the data says. If you don't like Bernie Sanders because you don't think he'd be a good president, then that's your your choice. You should act on that as a citizen. But if you are freaking out because he is so obviously an electoral disaster, I'm here to tell you it's just not what the information that we have now suggests. That was absolutely fantastic. So credit where it's due. Um, Chris Hayes should probably be worried that MSNBC will fire him after telling the truth about anything. But, you know, credit where it's due. And this George McGovern example, it's always been incredibly stupid to me because that happened 50 years ago. And the polls always showed that Nixon was going to beat George McGovern handily. That's not true now. And, like, rather than going back 50 years... Why wouldn't you just go back four years to see what type of candidate can beat Donald Trump? Clearly a moderate loss to him, right? So it's just they're literally trying to figure out any possible way to dissuade voters from opting for Bernie Sanders. But finally, we're not thinking about what would appease the pundits on mainstream news. We're voting in a way that makes us feel good because we know Bernie Sanders will fight for us. So this really is, I think, a watershed moment and um, you love to see it. So this next story is truly heartwarming because it really proves that money can't buy everything. You may be able to buy a lot of things, but you can't buy everything. Specifically, you can't buy loyalty because as many of you know, Mike Bloomberg is poaching the staff members of a lot of other campaigns and he's offering them not just competitive salaries, but a lot of money to work for him. So these other campaigns are having people flee them to work for Bloomberg, not necessarily because these people ideologically agree with Mike Bloomberg, but because the amount of money that he's offering is quite literally life-changing. So you can't really refuse it 
if you're self-interested, if you want to survive, if you live in a city like New York, you know, and you want to get by. Um, however, <laughs> not everyone who's working for Bloomberg uh, is fully on board with his agenda. Look at this tweet from Kayla Page. She writes, I just had a Mike Bloomberg canvasser come to my door. I let him know politely I am decidedly voting for Bernie Sanders. And then he just gave me a fist bump and said, oh, me too. Feel the burn, homie. <laughs> I love it so much. And um, I haven't you know, had the pleasure of speaking with a Bloomberg volunteer or staffer yet. But if I get a text from them, if I get a call or they knock on my door, I'm not going to be rude to them. I'm going to try to convince them to vote for Bernie Sanders. This really is an opportunity because usually when you're canvassing for Bernie Sanders, you have to go to other people's doors. But we may have an opportunity where they just come to our doors and try to get us to vote for Bloomberg initially. But I mean, this tells me that we can convince them to vote for Bernie Sanders. So that's what I'm going to try to do. But this isn't just an isolated incident because this is actually a bigger problem according to this article from GQ, which reads, Bloomberg's paid volunteers are telling voters to support other candidates. As it turns out, you can't buy loyalty. I love that. You can't buy loyalty. You can have a hundred different yachts. You can have a couple of mansions. But you can't buy love and affection. Anyone who's supporting Mike Bloomberg, these mayors across the country, you know, people in the House of Representatives who have endorsed him, they're not endorsing his policies. They're endorsing him because he helped them get elected. It's purely self-interest. So, I mean, Mike Bloomberg, he he's not an individual who stands for anything. He doesn't have a political ideology. He went from being a Republican to an independent, and now he's a Democrat. And I get that, you know, the Bernie's not a Democrat argument doesn't resonate with us, but Bernie has always had a consistent political ideology, whereas Mike Bloomberg has been all over the place, but he's remained solidly on the right. So you're not convincing anyone, and by, you know, hiring a bunch of people to canvas for you, Sure, you can pay them a lot of money and offer them a lot of nice perks like a MacBook Pro, but that doesn't mean that they're going to love you and act in good faith for you because they don't believe in you. Now, as Luke Darby of the article writes, the Los Angeles Times reports the campaign has hired 500 deputy field organizers, paying them $2,500 each to promote Bloomberg on social media to their friends and family. A Bloomberg spokesperson said in a statement that the goal is to meet the voters everywhere on any platform that they consume their news. Based on documents and interviews with some of these organizers, the Times found that many of them are using accounts that are only one or two months old and that some have fewer than 20 followers. One organizer described the training they received, saying the campaign told them the average person has a network of 750 people on their phones. They told us, we want you to reach out to those friends you're comfortable talking to and then also those friends you might not have talked to in a while but might be interested in politics. This is in line with some other other unusual approaches that the Bloomberg campaign has taken so far, including funding a massive meme-producing effort and a proposed $150 to social media micro-influencers to make content that tells us why Mike Bloomberg is the electable candidate who can rise above the fray, work across the aisle, so all Americans feel heard and respected, according to the campaign's listing. Despite the $2,500 paycheck, deputy field organizers aren't exactly turning out sizzling content. Per the Times, quote, 
Rather than create their own content, organizers often use the exact text, images, and links provided to them by the campaign. The result has been a stiff outpouring of tweets, Facebook and Instagram posts with little to no engagement and sometimes half-hearted text messages. Some organizers were so robotic in their tweeting, Twitter suspended their accounts Friday evening after the Times inquired about whether their behavior complied with the platform's rules on spam and manipulation. One organizer in Los Angeles told the Times, When I text my friends, depending on the friend, a lot of people think it's spam or my account was hacked. Once people realize it's actually me who's making these and it's not spam, they kind of just figure I'm being paid for it. At one point, another organizer texted his friends, Sam Donaldson just nailed it. Mike Bloomberg is the president we need to unite our country. Using the exact wording suggested by the Bloomberg campaign, he promptly followed up with a text reading, Please disregard, vote for Bernie or Warren. So, I mean, there you have it. Look, if you're not an organizer, if you have no, you know, uh, foundation in true grassroots, this is what happens. You can't get people to make memes for you that they believe in, that they find funny because you paid them to, because they have to believe it. Otherwise, the creativity, that spark's not going to be there. You can't have people reach out to friends that they don't know. I mean, I don't know 750 people. I could, like, reach out to, like, maybe 15 people at most. But, I mean, like, you can't get them to awkwardly talk to people from high school that they haven't spoken to in years to get them to vote for you. I mean, it's just... This isn't the way that organizing works. So you can try to poach people away from other campaigns and pay them a lot. But at the end of the day, if they don't believe in you, when they make that pitch to people, when they knock on doors for you, it's going to fall flat. It's going to fall flat. And really, the only thing that is keeping Mike Bloomberg's campaign alive, aside from a lot of money, is the fact that there are a lot of people who get everything that they know about politics from televisions, right? Not just news, but ads. Their entire viewpoint of the world is shaped by marketing. And really what Mike Bloomberg is doing here is engaging in a nationwide marketing campaign. He's trying to get people to believe that the product that he's selling, which is his campaign, is the best product for them. It's the same way that they market a cheeseburger for you. You've got to get this because it's delicious. It's the same way that they market any drink to you, you know, be it Mountain Dew or beer. It's the same fucking thing. But at the end of the day, you can't buy passion, you can't buy loyalty, as the subheader pointed out. So I absolutely love, it, love this. And let me just say this. Please don't be rude to anyone from Bloomberg's campaign. If they get a hold of you, because they likely will, convince them to vote for Bernie Sanders. We can actually do this. Like, <laughs> And this is, this is kind of us, like, on a wide scale, cucking Mike Bloomberg, because we're getting your volunteers to vote for Bernie Sanders. And it's been relatively successful based on a couple of anecdotes. But I mean, look, as I stated, if you don't have a foundation in the grassroots, you're not going to have a campaign that is going to be successful at reaching disaffected voters. You know, people who watch TV that always vote may opt for Bloomberg. But the reason why Bernie Sanders is so successful is because he has a real ground game. And the people who are canvassing for Bernie and phone banking for him, they believe to their core the message that Bernie Sanders is espousing. With Mike Bloomberg, I don't know what his message is. He's a billionaire. He's an opportunist. He's an authoritarian. He's explicitly racist, possibly fascistic, but I don't know what policies he stands for. He banned big gulps. He surveilled Muslims. 
right? He got into these wars with teachers in New York City in spite of what he said at the debate. So I don't know what he represents. And if you're a canvasser, it can't be the same thing. The only message that he has politically at this point in time is that he can beat Donald Trump. But now you don't have a leg to stand on because polls show that you actually lose to Donald Trump by three points and Bernie beats Trump by three points. That's according to one poll. But I mean, overall, there's just, there's no there there. So you might be able to, you know, have some type of penetration, politically speaking, in certain states because you have millions upon millions of dollars in television commercials that come on every five seconds. But at the end of the day, you know, if you don't actually offer people something to vote for, then you're going to have a difficult time. Um, so I absolutely love this story. This genuinely was a heartwarming story, and I, I couldn't wait to share it with you all because, you know, it, it really is disgusting and morally reprehensible that we have a billionaire who's literally trying to buy his way into the White House, and the precedent that this would set if he's able to be successful here, I don't even want to think about it. We'd have, what, Bob Iger, the Disney CEO, which just stepped down run in 2024. We'd have Mark Zuckerberg run in 2028, Jeff Bezos run in 2032. I don't want to start that, right? We already have that type of situation with Donald Trump where he kind of self-funded, but in the general, he took big money because he's not as rich as Bloomberg, but we don't want this to be a thing because once you go down this path, then we're just going to take turns having different billionaires run for office. And it's already bad enough that we have billionaires buying off Congress as you know, Mike Bloomberg admitted to on the debate stage, but we can't allow them to just buy the presidency now. We have to draw a line in the sand. So, you know, it is a little bit encouraging to see that, you know, he, he may be poaching people away from other campaigns and paying them a lot, but they're still not receptive to his message and they're not doing a great job. They're kind of acting as moles in his campaign and uh, sabotaging him internally. And that is a really good thing to see. Workers on strike in Charleston, South Carolina, were marching to demand a $15 an hour minimum wage until uh, this happened. As Tara Ball points out, Pete Buttigieg misses the rally and pulls up in his car to jump in front of the union march and get his photo op when we've already marched halfway to McDonald's. He is as opportunistic as it gets. And I don't know if you saw my post-debate breakdown analysis, but I declared that Pete Buttigieg is the Ted Cruz of the Democratic Party, and this is very uh, Cruzian, if you will, because I'm not sure if you remember this, but back in 2015, um, there was this county clerk, I can't remember what state it was in, but um, her name was Kim Davis, and she refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples after the Supreme Court declared that they couldn't not do that, right? So uh, she ended up going to jail, and then she was released, and Mike Huckabee held this big rally for her. And then at that rally, Ted Cruz tried to jump in and capitalize on that political event, and he was denied access. They wouldn't let him in. They wouldn't let him on stage. And... <laughs> I don't know why, but this reminds me of that, because here you have Pete Buttigieg, you know, he sees these workers marching, and what does he do? He, you know, tries to jump out in front of the line in order to get a photo op to make it seem as if he uh, cares about workers, when clearly he's just being opportunistic, trying to grab a photo op. It's embarrassing. But I have a video that shows that it actually backfired, because... Um, as he was trying to march with them, well, some in the crowd weren't too happy with him and didn't actually believe that he was really committed to a $15 an hour minimum wage. 
Thank you, Taiwan. I was inspired when we marched together over the summer. And I'll tell you why I was inspired. Because you didn't talk about what you wanted for you. You talked about wanting to provide for your child, and that is why everyone here supports you, and we support 15 in the union for all fast food workers. disability plan, what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that the sub-minimum wage comes to an end. We've got to do it with federal legislation. Okay, right. 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 Judge is insufferable and like he can't help himself he can't not be fake because I'm not sure if you noticed it but when he was talking to that girl at the beginning of the video he was using the thumb point the whole time like the very standard focus group driven political point because pointing you know is too aggressive so you have to use your thumb because that makes it seem like you're serious and he was doing that the whole time it's the man is uh, such a joke. I mean, what an opportunist. What a smarmy, fake politician. And, you know, as you heard, they booed him and they chanted, Pete can't be our president. Where was 15 in South Bend? And then he jetted the fuck out of there. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed this clip. I watched it multiple times. Listen, whenever a politician wants to be on your side, don't let them do things like this. Don't let them show up for a photo op. Deny them 
that photo op. Because even though, you know, it's easy to get, you know, overwhelmed because if you see someone who's famous or a politician with national name recognition, you know, you're starstruck. You want to take a photo with them. Understand that these people do not care about you. Pete Buttigieg does not care about workers. Look at his agenda. What is his agenda? He's more fixated on telling us what we can't have rather than telling us what is actually possible. So he doesn't care about labor. He's a standard corporate Democrat. And if it would be more politically expedient for him to be a Republican, then he would be running as a Republican right now. So I don't believe anything that he says. And I'm so glad that they did that and denied him that photo op because this isn't the first time where he showed up to places for a photo op. He went into a restaurant, I believe in Nevada, maybe it was South Carolina, I, I can't remember, but he approached these four black women and asked to take a picture with them. Why? Well, because he wants to make it seem as if black people like him. But in actuality, he's polling at, what, 2 3%? Everything is fake, everything is manufactured, and this type of campaign, in the era where, you know, we have the internet and we see everything, where we can get different takes from people who have cell phones, who are there who have Twitter, I just, I, I don't know what you're doing, like, back in the 1990s, 1980s, this stuff would fly, because nobody would doubt that, you know, these people support you, but now, we have people who can take to Twitter and say, hey, look, I just saw this opportunist jump to the front of the line, trying to grab a photo op, like, we can see all of this now, so, the fact that he's a millennial, and he doesn't grasp that, the fact that he doesn't understand the need for authenticity in the Trump era, it just shows that he, he like, he's so out of touch, he's so out of touch, and I, I'm so sick of him, like, when he first entered this race, I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm not gonna support him, but he's at least talking the right way about policies like Medicare for all. And then halfway into this process, he starts becoming increasingly corporatist. And now he's the most openly hostile towards Bernie Sanders, effectively saying he's the same as Donald Trump. And if you're exhausted now, wait until you see Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. No, we're exhausted from you, Pete, because you're driving us nuts because you're so fake. You're rehearsed. Everything you say is scripted. Nothing is authentic. You're disingenuous, and we don't know what you believe in because I don't think you have a political ideology. You stand for nothing. You represent no one. Just go away. He's so irritating, but regardless, you know, hopefully if you feel the same way that I do about Pete Buttigieg and you can't stand him, that that video gave you a little bit of, uh, of pleasure, I guess, for lack of a better word. It is really encouraging to see that Medicare for All has never had this much momentum, at least in my lifetime. Like, we've never talked seriously as a country about the pros and the cons between, you know, a private versus single-payer healthcare system. And it's great. And the reason why we're winning this argument is because we have facts and statistics and studies on our side, whereas our opponents, like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, all they have are corporate talking points and campaign contributions from the health insurance industry. So these are shills who are using hacky talking points that aren't landing, and as more and more people vote during the 2020 primaries, it's really nice to see that they're siding with Bernie Sanders. Even if they don't support Bernie Sanders or vote for him, 60 to 70% in some instances are siding with Medicare for All. So anyone who's against it at this point has to admit that they don't actually care about all of the benefits that it brings. They're just trying to maintain the status quo because they want to keep the gravy train rolling. But we will continue to convince more people because we've got the data on our side. And I want to talk to you about two new studies 
that came out. One is a study from Yale, the other is a meta-analysis, because it helps to further prove our point, and it helps us to make not just a statistical and money argument, but a moral argument for Medicare for All. So the first study shows that Medicare for All would not just save money, but more importantly, save thousands of lives. As Jason Lemon of Newsweek reports, the Medicare for All plan proposed by Democratic presidential candidates Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would save taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars each year and would prevent tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths, a new study shows. The analysis conducted by researchers at Yale University, the University of Florida, and the University of Maryland found that transitioning the United States to a single-payer healthcare system would actually save an estimated 450 50 billion each year, with the average American family seeing about 2,400 in annual savings. The research, which was published Saturday in the medical journal The Lancet, also found that Medicare for All would prevent about 68,000 unnecessary deaths per year. Quote, our study is actually conservative because it doesn't factor in the lives saved among underinsured Americans, which includes anyone who nominally has insurance but has postponed or foregone care because they couldn't afford the copays and deductibles. Alison Galvani, an author of the study and researcher at the Center for Infectious Disease Modeling and Analysis at the Yale School of Public Health, told Newsweek. Overall, the new research anticipates annual savings of about 13% in national health care costs while providing better health care access to lower-income families. According to the study, about 37 million Americans do not have health insurance, while an additional 41 million people do not have adequate health care coverage. Taken together, about 24% of the total population does not have health care coverage that meets their needs. Now, I just want to stop and reflect on the findings of this study. Put aside the savings, because that's one thing. Medicare for all, according to this study, would save 68,000 lives per year. Per year. So now the question becomes, if you don't support Medicare for all, why don't you care about those lives? Why are those lives meaningless to you? Why are health insurance industry profits more important than those lives? And I really hope that on a debate stage, we see Bernie Sanders ask this question. Because as they, you know, pretend to care about the lives of Americans and wanting everyone to have health care, this needs to be said. For all the times that the DNC, Tom Perez, and, you know, members of the Democratic Party establishment claim that health care is a right, well, how come you don't want it to be a right? If you don't believe healthcare should be free at the point of service, if you don't believe in Medicare for all, if you don't believe in doing what would save 68,000 lives per year, then you're indirectly responsible. You're indirectly responsible anytime someone who's uninsured or underinsured dies. And as they stated, this estimate is conservative because people who are uninsured oftentimes either go bankrupt or die because they have health insurance, but it's just not good enough. So we have to make this moral argument, and we've got to make it loudly and clearly, because someone in this country who doesn't have health insurance, you know, for them to die, that is just unacceptable, and we need to communicate to them that their lives are important, which is why we have to vote for Bernie Sanders, who is the only person who we can trust 
on this issue. Now, moving on to another study. This is a meta-analysis that shows there actually is a consensus among the experts who've crunched the numbers that Medicare for All would reduce overall healthcare spending. So, as Diane Archer of The Hill writes, Christopher Kai and colleagues at three University of California campuses examined 22 studies on the projected cost impact for single-payer health insurance in the United States and reported their findings in a recent paper in PLOS Medicine. Every single study predicted that it would yield net savings over several years. In fact, it's the only way to rein in healthcare spending significantly in the United States. All the studies, regardless of ideological orientation, showed that long-term cost savings were likely. Even the Mercatus Center, a right-wing think tank, recently found about $2 trillion in net savings over 10 years from a single-payer Medicare for All system. Most importantly, everyone in America would have high-quality healthcare coverage. Medicare for All is far less costly than our current system, largely because it reduces administrative costs. With one public plan negotiating rates with healthcare providers, billing becomes quite simple. We do away with three quarters of the estimated $812 billion the U.S. now spends on healthcare administration. So, I mean, there you have it. For everyone that's fear-mongering about the price tag of Medicare for All, why is it that they never speak to the fact that's been proven now by 22 studies that overall health spending will actually decrease under a Medicare for All system? Why do they never have an answer to that? Or, you know, whenever that question comes up, they change the topic. They say, well, you know what? Sure, I hear you there. You know, I see these studies about it saving lives. But why do you want to take away choice? Again, this is a talking point straight from the industry. And really, it's difficult to find studies that debunk that. But what we can do to debunk that narrative is have one of the authors of the Medicare for All bill, or the author of the Medicare for All bill, the House version at least, Pramila Jayapal, go on national television and speak to it. And that she did, because she actually responded to this stupid-ass choice argument, which I can't believe they're still using because it's it's so disingenuous, and she basically thoroughly dismantled it. On, and on top of that, she cited the Yale study and everything she did here was just brilliant because she is making a case for Medicare for all that is undeniable. Take a look. So what do you say to people who um, say, hey, I, I like my private insurance plan. Uh, I, I work for a large employer. It's relatively inexpensive. It's, it's relatively a simple system. So what do you say to people who don't yeah. want to give up their, their private insurance plans? Well, I would just say, first of all, that nobody likes their private insurance plan. What they like is their doctor. And if you look at all the polling, when people are asked if they want to give up their private insurance, the support goes down a little. If you take the next question, which is if you could keep your doctor, but you were going to have to give up your private insurance plan, the support goes up even higher, including among independents and Republicans. So what people want is health care. And the current plans, the employer provided health care, even if you're lucky enough to have that, you are seeing costs increase dramatically. It is why unions have come on board to Medicare for all, because they see the direct connection between wage stagnation and rising health care costs. And what choice do you really have if you have an employer covered plan? 
your employer chooses the plan, your insurance provider decides what benefits and what doctors and hospitals you get to see. That's why we have all the horrible surprise billing that's happening across the country. And if you lose your job or if you're too sick to go to work, you've got no health care at all. So I think this is a red herring to say that these plans provide choice. What really provides choice is to guarantee insurance for all Americans so that whether you're in one job or the next, you keep the same plan, yeah. the same doctors, and you actually get to have lower costs and not be providing, you know, not be in that situation where you're dying. W one more thing I want to say here. There was a fabulous study that just came out published in The Lancet, very respectable medical journal, um, and it was done by the director of infectious diseases at Yale University. She estimates, or those researchers estimate, that Medicare for All would save over 68,000 lives and save $450 billion annually. Medicare for All who want it would actually cost us right. more and not cover everybody. That was absolutely brilliant. That was absolutely brilliant because when they talk about choice, when you're referring to our for-profit private health insurance system, what is this in actuality? It's the illusion of choice, right? Because even with the public option, I can technically choose between public or private insurance, but that doesn't actually increase choice where I want it when it comes to healthcare. I want to be able to see whatever doctor and go to whatever hospital or doctor's office I want to, but I can't do that even with a public option. Why? Because networks will still exist. There's still multiple payers in the system, right? So I'm limited in my options overall. But Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden, they don't tell you that because they're paid to use these talking points that originate directly from the health insurance industry. And, you know, we've made a really powerful case for Medicare for All, and we cite data and statistics over and over. We cite public opinion polls, but notice how they always have an answer for everything. They always move the goalposts. So when we tell them that it saves money and saves lives, then they'll say, well, what about choice? When we explain why that's actually not even even something that makes sense, it's the illusion of choice with our current system, and really, if you want choice, then you would opt for Medicare for All, then they say, yeah, well, how do you get it done? Isn't it politically implausible? And would you be willing to compromise? Like, there's always some type of bullshit manufactured response because they just don't want Medicare for All. Because think about this, in mainstream media, they get advertising dollars from Big Pharma, from the private insurance industry. Democrats, they take money from Big Pharma and these private health insurance companies. Republicans do too. So they have a vested interest that helps them to not have or to argue against the system. It's an existential threat to their donors or advertisers. Uh, but what I liked is that Pramila Jaipal had another phenomenal response to this question about, you know, it being politically implausible and whether or not we uh, would compromise. Unequivocally, she said, no. Because if we compromised, then that defeats the entire purpose of what we're trying to accomplish. If you want the cost-saving benefits of Medicare for All, you've got to get rid of the source that causes all of this instability in our healthcare system, the private insurance companies. Would Democrats like yourself accept an incremental uh, application in pursuit of Medicare for All, perhaps just going after, to your insulin point, the negotiation of pharmaceutical drug prices rather than just demanding this whole program wholesale? No, here's the problem, Bob. If you try to keep the private insurance companies in the marketplace, what you do is drive up costs. The whole problem with our healthcare system today is that it has started to put profits over patients. We have a system where 30% of our entire healthcare costs in this country are 
are actually going to administration. And that is uh, really ways to keep people from getting health care and provide big CEOs with huge paychecks. But it's not providing people with health care. So we have to fix that underlying problem or you do not bring down costs and you do not provide universal care for everyone. Again, that was absolutely brilliant. And she really is one of the best, if not the best spokesperson for Medicare for all, because these private insurance companies, they are the underlying issue when it comes to all the problems that we have in our system, the health insurance providers, they are the lowest common denominator. They're driving up the costs, right? And they're doing this because they prioritize profits, not healthcare. So if you don't get them out, then we're not solving any issues here. So compromising doesn't even make sense in that context. In context, if we want to deliver high quality, affordable healthcare to people, there's only one option. It's Medicare for all and acknowledge she didn't say this, but we've already compromised. We've already compromised. We should theoretically be opting for the true left-wing version of healthcare reform, which is a national health system like Britain has, where we have, you know, uh, publicly owned doctors and hospitals or pub publicly employed doctors and publicly owned hospitals, more specifically. But we're opting for just government-run insurance, not socialized medicine, socialized insurance, because that is going to be efficient, and we're already working with an existing framework, uh, and that's Medicare. Um, so she's just she's phenomenal here at making the case for Medicare for all, and it's so great to have her as an ally. Now, one last thing I want to leave you with is she made a really strong moral case for Medicare for all, and stressed that our current system, we have to respond to it. We have no choice because people are dying because of it. And I think the thing here to think about is that we have a healthcare system that literally causes people to die. We have a healthcare system where people are paying 10 times more for insulin in the United States than they do in Canada. We have a healthcare system where 500,000 people every year file for medically related bankruptcy, uh, bankruptcy because of medically related costs. So this is untenable. The system as a whole will cost us $55 trillion over the next 10 years. So the question here becomes, why would you protect the status quo? And how do we make sure that every single person has universal care? In the last year since I've introduced the bill, we have had a historic four hearings in the House of Representatives. We have over half mm -hmm. of the Democratic caucus, including top leadership. We have 30 unions that have sponsored the bill, an incredible racial justice coalition, because people understand that we have to imagine a different kind of guaranteed government provided insurance program that will allow everyone to get health care. No co-pays, private insurance premiums or deductibles. That was excellent. And we have to continue not just arguing on the basis of statistics and cost and public opinion polls, but we've got to make a moral case. Like, even if the studies show that Medicare for all wouldn't be cheaper, that doesn't matter to me. I care more about lives because that's more valuable than money or the deficit, right? If we're not serving the people, if the United States government isn't looking out for the American people, then nothing else matters, People are dying. So we've got to make that case. We've got to cite over and over again, 68,000 lives will be saved every single year, possibly more if you factor in the underinsured. And anyone who's against this reform, Medicare for all single payer, they're admitting tacitly that they don't care about those lives. Those lives are meaningless. They can keep dying because they want to, they want to protect the profits 
of their health industry donors. Pete Buttigieg isn't trying to, you know, offer people more choice. He's making a political calculation and doesn't care that thousands of people will die every single year. So if you don't believe that we should save that 65,000 or 68,000 lives, then you're a bad person. The blood from them is on your hands. If they die, you have to live with this, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, because we can actually do something about it. We have studies that confirm not only is our plan cheaper and more efficient, but it saves thousands of lives. If you're against that, then you're a bad person, period, end of story. And I get that. It seems like, you know, we're being hyperbolic to really make moral arguments like that, but that's really what it comes down to. Like, if we had some type of invading force, if Russia invaded and was killing 68,000 Americans every single year, would we not take swift military action and not even question the cost? Of course. So why are we sitting back and letting 68,000 Americans die every single year when we know exactly what to do to stop that? Are their lives not important? So that's the case that we have to make. And we have to make it loudly because... We're on the right side of history. And when we win one day, when we get Medicare for All codified into law, anyone who's arguing against it now will be not viewed kindly by history. I'll tell you that. Pete Buttigieg is one of them. Hello, everyone. I am here with Semelis Lopez, who's running in New York's 15th congressional district, and she is here to talk about her campaign. Semelis, thank you so much for coming on the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So if you can't tell, she is in the heart of Bronx currently. Tell us where you are. I'm in the heart of the South Bronx right now. I'm by 3rd Avenue and 149th, which is the hub in the Bronx. That's awesome. You can like you can hear the drums in the background. It like you you really get a sense of like the spirit in the city and it's so exciting. Now, one thing that's interesting right. is that you it's a are a beautiful community. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of people from the Bronx. Um, I've interviewed candidates from the Bronx, one of which is uh, AOC. You are running in her neighboring district, and you basically just recently got one of the biggest endorsements, if not the biggest endorsement that you can get in politics, AOC. So tell us about that. How did you get the endorsement of AOC? Well, you know, AOC's Courage to Change Pack endorsed our campaign as of last Friday. And they'd been uh, reaching out to us and they wanted to find out how we were organizing our volunteer network because that's really what people like AOC care about. They don't care about how much money you have in the bank. They don't care, uh, you know, how much money you have. For her, it's a matter of building a political movement, of figuring out how many volunteers you have, the excitement that you have on the ground. Um, and I think that she went with us because of that, because she saw how we were fundraising our money. Over 80% of our donations are small dollar contributions from the Bronx um, and from New York City as a whole, unlike any other candidate um, and campaign that's running in the 15th Congressional District. I think that our fundraising reflects our values in the community. Right now, the community is going through a gentrification and a displacement crisis in the community, so we cannot afford to send people to Washington or any level of government that is taking real estate developer money, corporate PAC contributions, pharmaceutical money, basically taking donations from systems of oppression that are bringing us down in the community. So I think that they saw that in our campaign and 
you know, they went on board to support our efforts so that we can uh, grow, so that they can help amplify what we're doing on the ground with resources so that we can develop the kind of infrastructure that we need to win this race. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I hope that she makes more endorsements because I think that she really does have a lot of influence. And it's nice to see that she's not yeah. like getting to Congress and closing the door behind her. She's trying to bring more people in. I will say I'm a little bit bitter that she didn't endorse my girl, Sema Hernandez in Texas. But with that being said, she has a lot of great people. And I would encourage you all to check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, so you mentioned the, the real estate developers and anyone who's a progressive from New York, they always talk about that because this is the key to a lot of the issues there. And what's interesting about you is that you were actually a congressional aide for your current opponent. So tell us who your opponent is and why, you know, as someone with a little bit of inside information, you think that you'd be a better representative for that district. Well, actually, I'm not running against the person that I was a congressional aide for. Uh, this is an open seat. Oh, okay. So Congressman Jose Esterrano is uh, retiring because uh, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. I see. So he's stepping down. Well, on June 23rd, 2020, there's going to be an open seat here in the South Bronx to determine who the next congressional candidate is going to be that's going to represent the neighborhood. So uh, he's actually really beloved in the congressional district. He's been here for like 30 years. He's actually really progressive on uh, many issues. Uh, so he's going to be stepping down. So he gave me my first opportunity of public service as a congressional aide, doing housing casework and immigration casework. And I saw the way that he was able to lead in the community and how he was able to bring many different people together. Because even though this is a uh, predominantly Latino community, it's not just Latino, it's West African. It's African-American, it's Yemeni, it's Muslim, uh, it's, you know, a slice of every piece of the world is in this community. So the representative that deserves to win this area and represent it is somebody who's not going to play identity politics, is somebody who's going to basically bring people together so that we can realize what we have in common, which is fighting against things like white supremacy, fighting against things like worker exploitation, immigration injustice, and being a champion for the Homes Guarantee platform, which is a platform that's beautiful that was basically created by directly impacted people facing homelessness and lack of repairs in their homes and, and mold living in NYCHA and things like that. And they all came together to say, this is not how we want to live. And we want to reclaim the housing stock and we want to bring this platform together and be a champion of it uh, so that people in the community can live with pride and dignity. Um, so that's kind of like what the issues are in this congressional district. The number one issue that we hear at the doors is homelessness. It's the rents skyrocketing. So we need a working class champion that's going to reject that kind of money, real estate developer money to finance their campaign and put the people first unapologetically. And that's what our campaign is about. That's actually really encouraging um, because I see a lot of situations that are basically David versus Goliath across the country. So to know that you're not like taking on a political machine, I mean, you still are in a sense, the establishment, but you're not going up against an incumbent. That actually really is encouraging. So I, I kind of want to ask you about the dynamics of the race because I wasn't aware that he was retiring. Um, what has it been like? Like, are you basically receiving the blessing of him and the establishment in New York City, like the local establishment? Or is this basically a really no, competitive no, no, race? No, I, I don't know how he's, even though he gave me my first start of public service, this was years ago when I graduated college. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where he's standing or he's supporting. He hasn't been vocal on that. But, you know, I'm not waiting for anybody's blessing. Uh, I basically am doing this with the blessing of the community and people that I have been organizing with for a very long time. 
I believe that when, you know, you have a calling to do something like this, you have to basically rely on the community and you have to create that change. And it starts from the ground up, really. So I don't think that we need to ask anybody for permission. And, you know, the last people that I would ask permission to do anything like this is the Bronx Democratic Political Establishment. So we're moving forward. We're organizing. We're knocking on doors. We're raising money in a clean way that centers the needs of directly impacted people in the district that I love. And that's basically who's inspiring us to keep going when things get hard. Um, and we're basically leading with love and compassion, which is revolutionary in and of itself, and really using politics as a way of building community and bringing different people together and being humble in terms of how we approach people so that we can listen to their needs and let their needs as directly impacted people living in this community shape our platform. So we've been taking people's opinions and perspectives so that we can build out what we're fighting for because I have a background in urban planning and I believe strongly that we need to center those experiences because a lot of people talk about very um, fancy terms in policy and sometimes policy is done from an ivory tower, but I'm against that. I think that it's directly impacted people that need to shape policy and the narrative. And, uh, you know, we need people in all levels of government that reflect those direct experiences. And that's basically the perspective that we're taking in our campaign. Yeah, and I love that so much. I love that so many candidates, yourself included, like you're not waiting your turn, for lack of a better word, where, you know, you have to go through... Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Sorry, you kind of like... Did I Lost cut off? for a second. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, perfect. But you're back now. Yeah, so, okay, what I was saying was, I really like that candidates such as yourself, you're not... Uh, waiting your term, uh, for lack of a better word, because it's like you don't. No, absolutely not. You're not going through all of these proper channels. Like you're just standing up because you have experience with the community. And just browsing through your Twitter feed, like I, I just thought to myself, she's phenomenal. I love you. You were talking about how oh, it so only rich people can attend the debate. You were tweeting about that with the ticket cost of seventeen hundred dollars right. in South Carolina, and it's it's so infuriating because it really feels like normal working people have just been shut out of our entire political process. And so to see candidates like you rise up, it really is inspirational, even though that sounds corny, like it, it is true. So can you talk through your platform a little bit because you have a very uh, human-centered approach to politics. What's your platform? Right, uh, the platform that we're fighting for is definitely um, everything that we've been talking about. We want to have people have a sense of true ownership over the local political process. Well, before I announced my participation in this race, we've been organizing people on the Around in terms of educating them about the infrastructure of their local political party and getting them enrolled in local party positions like county committee, district leader, state committee. Um, basically what Bernie Sanders was inspiring us to do back in 2016, he said that we should be running in all levels of politics and government so that we can transform our government and make sure that we've been organizing for a very long time in the community uh, democratizing political information and identifying activists that have been doing this work on the ground and taking guidance and inspiration from frontline communities here in the Bronx, like the environmental justice community that has bared the brunt of environmental injustice. So we need to center that narrative and inject it in everything that we do and use our platform in Congress to 
fight for those ideals and center that those experiences and that platform so that we can take the advocacy to the next level and create the right political conditions for the community activism and the movements on the ground that are really the ones that are have a huge role in making transformative change in the community. Um, we need to create the right political conditions for that activism on the ground to take root. And um, what happened in 2018 with the Independent Democratic Conference, I don't know if you follow that conversation in New York State, but it was uh, me like eight uh, rogue Democrats that were empowering Republicans in Albany to stay in power. And then everybody in the progressive space, the authentic grassroots real you know, progressive space here in New York City and in the Bronx, we all got together to defeat that arrangement. And because of that, we were able to see one of the most progressive tenant rent reform measures that have ever been passed in Albany and all of New York State, New York State's history. And it's because the new people that we stood behind, the grassroots politicians that we ended up putting in Albany through our grassroots community effort, were able to amplify the housing justice movement on the ground that directly impacted people have been clamoring for for decades. And because of those political conditions that were created that was able to, to take root and give us tenant rent protections here in New York State. So the same thing has to happen nationally. We need to you know, look at what's happening in New York State with uh, the tenant rent reform uh, laws, with the efforts around the homes guarantee, seeing that energy and the housing activists that got together to make this happen. We need to be amplifying that at the federal level as well. Yeah, your platform is very robust, so I would encourage everyone to look um, at her platform. We'll have a link on the screen. I wanted to ask you because um, a day after the debate in South Carolina, there was an open letter from people of color in New York who basically called on the people of South Carolina and individuals voting on Super Tuesday not to support 2020 presidential candidate Mike Bloomberg. And since you're from New York, I wanted to get your take on Mike Bloomberg and the way he's trying to basically buy this election. Oh, my God. We need to stand against any efforts to buy our democracy. One of the biggest things that I'm fighting for is the importance of taking away big money and politics, because like we've been talking about the whole time, that you know affects everything that we're fighting for in the community. And it's a direct assault on our democratic values. So it's actually really corrupt what's happening with this election. But I'm not scared of Michael Bloomberg because in the door knocking that I've been doing in the Bronx, people overwhelmingly love Bernie Sanders and they understand that he's the working class champion that the people need and they love his message. And people love his message around worker solidarity, around the union movement. Uh, he came out with a great platform the other day on universal child care, uh, you know, that people really need, at least in my community, because a lot of people leave their kids home when they go to work because they can't afford childcare. So people understand who the true working class champion is and the importance of making sure that working class people that are making under $40,000 a year, $20,000 a year, have a champion, an organizer in chief that's going to fight for their values and their needs and you know what they're about so that we can rise together as a community and respect the revolutionary legacy that places like the Bronx you know, can, you know, show to the world because this is who we are. I'm standing on the shoulders of a movement and people like Michael Bloomberg don't represent that, but people like Bernie Sanders and AOC and then Omar and the rest of the members of the squad represent that transformative change. So this race in particular for me 
I keep saying this on the campaign on the campaign trail. It's about leaving behind the transactional politics of a broken political system and embracing the politics of transformation that's being waged in Washington D.C. right now by people like Bernie Sanders, AOC, Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, uh, and others that are engaging in the fight for transformative justice in the country, in our communities, and that's the kind of transformative transformation that we need to see that we need to fight for because this is really about reclaiming the soul of the Democratic Party and reclaiming our working class roots in this party that have been co-opted by the corporate Democrats that are not corp even corporate Democrats, they're Republican light. So we need to reclaim our working class roots in this party and take it over. Yeah. And that means getting more numbers, getting more people like AOC and Ilan Omar into Congress uh, so that we can build that infrastructure and make sure that this party works for the 99%, not the 1%. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you use the term organizer in chief because to beat money, that's the only way that we're going to even have a chance. And you really see the that's power the in grassroots organizing. I mean, uh, all across the country, from the Bronx to uh, Seattle with socialist Shama Sawant organizing and beating Amazon. Like, this really is. A national movement and it's yeah. so nice to see so many people rise up so i know that you've got limited time before you go tell us what we can do to help you get elected well i'm so grateful for this platform that you all have given us um i think raising awareness donating is also a very important piece of that you can go to lopezforthepeople.com because since we've rejected dirty money to finance our campaign we're just relying on regular grassroots contributions from the community to keep us afloat, to feed our volunteers, to distribute our literature. So that's an important piece. Uh, you know, share us on social media uh, and connect with us too. If there's an idea that you have, if there's something on the platform that you feel could be expanded, uh, sign up at lopezforthepeople.com. If you have a talent in video making, definitely sign up and connect this to people. Uh, you know, we're always looking to, to learn and build in our own community because we always want to center the frontline experiences of people in, in the Bronx because that's one of the things. Uh, the Bronx keeps getting described as the poorest congressional district in the entire country. And that's something that I want to get across uh, tonight before I uh, hop off. Uh, it's not just the poorest congressional district in the country. We have a lot of economic challenges, but it's the most resilient borough in the entire country because we've you know seen in the 70s and the 80s how the landlords burned the buildings here for profit um, and then we saw the incredible rebirth of the South Bronx and you know what that meant so I definitely am standing on top of a I'm a movement that has always been here in the Bronx. I'm standing on our revolutionary spirit, our resiliency. And I think that there's a lot of local solutions here in the South Bronx, this congressional district, that can be implemented nationally and globally. So I feel that with this race, one of the things that I want to do along with others collectively in this community is transform the way that the Bronx is perceived in the world. We're not downtrodden. We're a place of rebirth. We're the birthplace of hip hop. We, you know, are the birthplace of, of salsa. You know, uh, we have a lot of creativity and energy and people need to be looking to the South Bronx as a global and a national policy thought leader. Um, you know, where the solutions that the frontline communities here have developed can be implemented internationally and nationally. That's perfect. Thank you so much. So follow for us at lopezforthepeople.com. Come to the Bronx, help us knock on doors, help us, uh, you know, volunteer, and uh, 
Thank you so much. Yes. Before we go, best place to eat in South yeah. Bronx? Well, I'm near one of my favorite places. It's La Bella. It's a Mexican restaurant that's by 149th and Morris Avenue. They have really good chicken quesadillas, and I get them with extra cilantro and uh, onions and uh, cheese on top, and it's really good. Now I'm hungry. Thank it's you. It's called La Perla. <laughs> well, there you have it. Thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been an absolute Thank pleasure. You. We will be following your campaign very closely, yeah. and good luck. Thank you so much. And remember, uh, visit us at lopezforthepeople.com. All right, folks, that's all that I've got. As usual, thank you all so much for tuning in if you've made it this far. As usual, we can't end the program without thanking all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for, for helping us to not just survive but thrive as well. You all are absolutely crucial to our show's success and growth. Thank you all so much. So I am, uh, I'm done talking. I'll see you all next week in the month of March. Take care, everyone.